Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Well, hello, those of you who are joining us live for a debate on whether or not Christians should use guns against other Christians. I have two wonderful gentlemen here. Both of them have been guests on my show, and they are here to defend uh, different positions on whether or not Christians can use guns. Uh, I have with me, first of all here, Dick Clark, who is an attorney in private practice focusing on firearms law and a committee legal counsel in the Nebraska legislature. He's also co-author of Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. Hey, Dick, thanks for, thanks for coming on here. Good to see you, Doug. I also have Jerry Robinson, a recent guest on the Libertarian Christian Podcast, and he's founder and executive director of the True Riches Radio Academy and host of the True Riches, of True Riches Radio, a podcast dedicated to challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe upon the kingdom of God. Jerry, thanks for coming back so soon, even. Yeah, great to be here. Thank I you. I feel like we just talked last week. It's been so soon. So recent. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, gentlemen, this has been, uh, I, I think, uh, something we've all three been looking forward to based on the email exchanges that we've that we've been having uh, lately. And um, for those of you watching live and even for those of you listening later, um, I'm going to talk about the ground rules. The debate is, should Christians, the, the question for the debate is, should Christians use guns against other humans? So the reason it's worded that way, and we've talked about this uh, off air before we started, and as we set up the debate, we're not talking about, is it okay for gun owners to have guns for means of sport or sustenance. That's not part of this debate. This, so this is not really about gun ownership per se, um, although I'm sure the, um, the the debate might get into that a little bit in terms of like what, what sort of uh, caveats one might have. Uh, we're also not talking about what the non-Christians should be expected to believe or how to behave. This is a debate about Christians. What should Christians believe about guns and how should they behave with respect to guns? And the debate format is one of my own choosing. Um, instead of just having, you know, each participant have like, say, 20 minutes and then 20 minutes and then, you know, the rebuttals and all of that, that that happens all the time. And I want to do something a little bit different. And it's in some ways like a little bit of a mini debate uh, or many little mini debates, because the questions I've chosen ahead of time and each person, uh, Dick and Jerry, both get to um, answer. And then before we get to the next question, what happens is they will actually be allowed to ask each other questions of curiosity and clarification. Uh, and so just be like, hey, uh, what did you mean by that? It sounded like you said this, but is that really what you implied? Because I thought this. So those kinds of questions, we're going to have an opportunity to uh, go over uh, after each question. So um, and then at the end, uh, they will actually be able to sort of cross-examine one another a little bit more directly. And then the audience will have time for Q&A. Um, so we thank you, those who are live. So you get to participate in the live section. So uh, each question, guys, we have five minutes. I've got a timer here on my computer and I will just, you know, give you a signal as to like you've got one minute left or whatever when we get down to that. Um, and so I have sort of alternately determined just on my computer randomly picked, OK, you're going first on this one. You're going first on the next one. And it's it's not any sort of rhyme or reason. So I'm not to my best knowledge, not biasing. Who gets to go first in any in any sort of way? Um, so I'm going to get to question number one. Using as much scripture as possible, what is your primary thesis concerning the Christian's use of guns? And Dick, you have been chosen to start with this. 
All right. I won the coin toss. So first elephant in the room, uh, I can tell you that guns are not mentioned in the Bible. Now, part of that is because uh, the history of civilization is such that that technology did not exist at that time. So what we have to, if we're going to use the Bible to discuss this topic, we have to uh, figure out how, because it's not directly addressed. Certainly weapons are discussed in the Bible. Uh, Legal rights uh, and responsibilities and the consequences of violating legal order uh, are discussed in the Bible. Uh, And then, of course, we have the direct teachings of Christ, uh, our Savior, who uh, does not conflict with any of those things that uh, are in the Old Testament. But he really shows us how to put faith into action in this post, uh, you know, covenant community world that the Israelites in the first century were in, and certainly that we are in, uh, where we are not in some covenant community called Israel. We're living in a world that's not our home, uh, and we shouldn't have our hopes built up here, right? Our hope is to come. But as it relates to a primary thesis on Christians' use of guns against other people, first off, I think it should be something that is extraordinarily reluctant to do. There's no joy in it. There's no desire to hurt others. But I think that insofar as there is an aggressor who is going to severely injure or kill others, I think that acting in a protective manner to protect those others against someone who is using unlawful force against them, I don't think that's unbiblical. I think we can see biblical examples of it. And I think even commands about defending the weak and the fatherless, for example, in Psalm uh, 82.3. And now we know that ultimately God is our shield. And we don't put our hope or our trust or our faith in material things because that just makes it an idol. And we certainly, it's possible for somebody to make a gun into an idol. Uh, And I think there are some people that do that. And I think that's sin. But I think just like love of money isn't the same thing as use of money. I don't think love of guns or living by guns or living by the sword, as it were, are the same thing as having one or using one in some limited circumstances. So my primary thesis is that there's a right to life in the Bible. There's a legal right to self-defense that we see in the, in the only legal code that you know, governs a civil society, uh, you know, and that's in Exodus 22.2, and it's talking about a burglar who breaks in at night, a person who uses deadly force against them is not to be convicted of a crime for that. Uh, and I think that's the clearest uh, legal code entry, if you will, relating to the use of force in self-defense as we would think of it in the modern era. But jumping way forward into the ministry of Christ uh, among us, you know, of course, Christ commanded believers and one believer in particular not to live by the sword. And he also made it clear, by the way, the Old Testament does too, that we're not supposed to be in the revenge business. So really the only use of deadly violence against another person that I would admit to being Christ-like or uh, in accord with the teachings of Christ would, would be deadly force that is proportional against an aggressor to protect unlawful use of force uh, against others. And I'll even say that I think if I'm talking about my own bodily integrity, my own life, I am freer to give of that and be generous of that than with respect to others that I have responsibility for, for example, my wife and children. So 
I'll stop there and I'm sure we'll dig in deeper as we go. Thanks, Dick. All right, Jerry. So you have a full five minutes. Um, uh, Dick, thank you for remaining under the time. Uh, and the question again, for those uh, kind of new here, uh, is um, first question of this debate is using as much scripture as possible. What is your primary thesis concerning the Christian's use of guns? All right, Jerry, you're up. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you, Doug, for hosting this uh, debate. Thank you, Dick. I really appreciate the spirit of your comments. I, I want to open this up uh, by saying that I'm, as a follower of Christ, I start and end with Jesus. You know, he's my beginning. He's my end. He's my first. He's my last. And what I know about Jesus is that he taught and lived nonviolent love of friends and enemies. We read in, say, Isaiah 53, verse 9, it tells us that Jesus did no violence. And every person knows this. It doesn't matter if you're talking to a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist. Everyone knows that Jesus was nonviolent. And Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I can think of nothing that makes it easier for a common man to do violence and look exactly the opposite of Jesus than a gun. And if we're truly following Jesus, I, I would say we have to ask ourselves how we could desire something that makes violence, which is a sin, so accessible. And how can we be duped into believing that our Father has given machines of death to us as a gift? The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, Do not be deceived, brethren, for every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, who never changes, never changes. Now, when we look in the Babylonian myth story, you know, Babylon, Babylonian creation myth, we see that the world was created through violence. But when we look at Genesis 1, we see a nonviolent creation story. We see that Adam was made uh, in God's image, and he was therefore perfect and nonviolent. When we get to uh, Jesus, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, his very first sermon, we see many things. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. He says for us to love our enemies. And he doesn't just tell us this. He actually demonstrates it. He tells us to turn the other cheek, which was a very strange command when you compare it to what was actually said in the Old Testament. Very, very different from what the Old Testament seems to be implying. And if you're not using a gun against an enemy, I don't know who you're using it against. We're told to love our enemies. If you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder, Jesus says. How can you shoot someone with a gun? and not hate them. The Apostle Paul tells us that vengeance is mine, uh, is what the Lord says. I will repay. The Bible tells us to not avenge ourselves, to not play the role of blood avenger and to seek revenge, but instead to overcome evil with good. You can't overcome evil with good with an AR-15. You can't overcome evil with good with a machine of death. We repay evil for evil to no one. Why do we do this? Why does, why does God command us to do this? Because God doesn't do evil to anyone either, and we're called to be sons of God. How can we say that we're not avenging ourselves with a gun in our hand? When Jesus stood before Pilate, he told him that if my kingdom were of this world, or of this cosmos, then my servants would be fighting, John 18, 36. So we know that Jesus' disciples, in, as well as he, were both nonviolent. Uh, Jesus tells us that greater love has no man than he that lays down his life for his friends. We're laying down one's life and taking life are two very different things. In uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, as uh, my opponent had brought up, Jesus says, 
He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. And in case we're confused about this, Paul tells us that though we walk, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Why? Because our weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Instead, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The spiritual weapons that we have are the belt of truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the sword of the spirit. All of these are spiritual weapons. There are no carnal weapons in this list. Jesus tells us to be like a child if we wanted to enter the kingdom of heaven. No child is instructed to use violence. We would never tell our children to use violence to, to solve conflict. Everyone knows that children are not to be violent. And yet we need to be like children to be sons of God. So when we look at Revelation 21 and 22 at the very end of the Bible, we see that man has been made perfect and man is nonviolent. The Bible tells us that Jesus maimed zero people. He killed zero people. The disciples killed zero people. A servant is not greater than his master. All right. Thank you, Jerry. So this, uh, this time of just inter-question inquiry is meant to be for gathering more information. Uh, it's not meant for gotcha questions. It's, uh, you, you can do those later, guys, um, if, you, if you want to. But uh, just, uh, Dick, do you have any questions for Jerry since Jerry's already yeah. up on screen here? So just uh, a handful uh, here. Yeah, Isaiah 54, uh, I'm sure you're aware of. I mean, how, what's your response to Isaiah 54, 16 that says that indeed God did create the blacksmith, the weapon maker. And that is part of, I mean, it's expressed in this very book of scripture that you cited. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to recap. I mean, that, and that's, that's something that is declared by the Lord. And so, I, again, that's expressed in the scripture. I'm not adding any analysis to that, but what's your reaction to that? Well, it, when I would read something like that, I would say, well, and again, it would bring me right back to Jesus. And so I would ask myself, how does this look like Jesus? And there are many things in the Old Testament that seem to conflict with what Jesus says. And I think that's, we must read the Old Testament in light of what Jesus says and what he reveals because he's the full manifestation and full revelation of God. So while the Bible may say that God wants people to kill others, or it may say that uh, we're not to touch the leper, or it may say that we are to stone those who walk around with sticks on the Sabbath, we have to look at Jesus and then look at the Old Testament in light of Jesus. And so I, I would look at verses like that and say, well, if they contradict what Jesus has said, we are reading them wrong. That's how I would approach a, a scripture like that. And, and I would, okay. Uh, so let's shift to what Jesus said then. When Jesus commanded his disciples to prepare for the evangelical road ahead at the Last Supper and ordered them to he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one in Luke 22. And then two of the 12 produced swords. So they, there were two, we, we, you know, I always do this as a trivia question. Hey, how many disciples were concealed carrying at the Last Supper? Two. We know that from the scriptural canon. And again, we are supposed to look like Jesus, except insofar as he has commanded us otherwise. For example, Jesus was unmarried, but I'm not commanded to be unmarried, right? Uh, and there are other ways in which I'm not supposed to be an exact photocopy in my life of how Jesus lived. 
because there are also these commandments that he's given. And one of the commandments was to arm yourselves. Now, I don't think that that was for a military purpose. And I think that we would agree there that Christians are not supposed to be trying to fight the Lord's war with, with weapons or whatever, right? But I mean, what's your response to that where Jesus is clearly talking about swords, the disciples who were there produced swords. So clearly that's what they understood him to be talking about. And then he says, that's enough. So I guess about one for every six people was enough. But reaction to that? Oh, right. Well, I've actually done a whole video on that topic. It's a really important passage you brought up, Luke twenty-two thirty-six. Yeah. Uh, yes. But the, the, way, the, the way that I immediately think of it is I look at the context and I see that he's actually referring to a prophecy about being found amongst, you know, lawbreakers. Yes. But, but the other thing is, is that we would have to ask, and maybe I would, I would ask a question back as an answer, would be, how many people do you think that the disciples use those swords on during their life? And, and my answer to that would be, it depends on how you defined a defensive weapon use. Because the how, vast how, majority... How many, time, how many yeah. times did they stick the sword into a belly of one of their enemies? How many times? I, as far as we know, zero. And okay. but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't well, carry a sword, right? Deterrence is part of the but, value. Well, are, are you sinning if you don't carry one? If Jesus expressly said to carry a sword, would you be sinning if you don't carry one? Well, no, because then he provided the answer that he wanted some basic provision, and this is enough. You got two in the bunch of you. So if you're waylaid on the evangelical road later, you know, probably you're going to make it to your destination, right? But, you know, I'm glad that they didn't have to get into fights. I don't want to get in any fights, but it, it just seems clear to me that the Machaira, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so forgive my pronunciation, but that small sword that Jesus is referring to is very much the concealed carry weapon of its day. And I think that that is directly analogous, not to the so-called weapons of war, but to that 38 revolver in your coat pocket. Well, you'd have to ask the question, why didn't the disciples teach others this very important command to carry this sword? Because we have no commands from any of the apostles who were there in their writings telling us Jesus told us to carry, you know, modern, modern day weapons and you need to carry one. We don't Other see that than Luke, in any. Right? No, no, only it, well, Jesus says it there. But then we never have the disciples teach others to do this same thing. So they, they must, so they must have understood. committing that to writing him teaching others that would follow the teachings of Christ? Well, we have, we have Paul saying that our weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So therefore, and right. we, don't, we don't have carnal weapons. So uh, in warfare. Everyone, well, how many times did Jesus use a sword? And how many times did his disciples use one? We, we only have one instance. Well, we know and why that, Jesus didn't use a sword in part because, as he told Peter, he had at his disposal all the hosts of heaven. And so, to me, again, as an attorney, what that rings in my ear is he's attacking the legal elements of a self-defense claim. Because ordinarily, if I interpose with violent force in defense of a third party, there's a necessity element. And there's not a necessity element for the king of all creation to have a, you know, a little uh, rough fisherman with his small sword come to his aid, right? I, there was no necessity for, for Peter to do that. And in fact, we know that Christ's life was given up by him freely, right? It couldn't be taken from him if he wasn't willing. Uh, and I, I think that's clear from Scripture too. So it, it worked against what he was there to do, although certainly it was still criminal for the people to kill them. I don't mean it was literally by consent in the legal sense, but he knew that was going to happen. And Peter well, what was just catching up. He wasn't quite there with all the prophecy and the understanding that Jesus had delivered to him, but he hadn't quite chewed on, I don't think, enough. So, Jerry, well, I'm going to let you respond here, and then we're going to go to yep. question number number two. 
No problem. Yeah. So this is a very important uh, scripture, though. I'm so glad you brought it up. But but Luke 22, 36, you know, it's a very challenging scripture because you have Jesus saying, he who doesn't have a cloak, you know, have a sword, go sell your cloak and buy one. So the inference here is, are we supposed to carry swords? Well, the idea is here is that Jesus never uses one, that the disciples only use one one time in recorded history, and they they maim, you know, the high priest's servant. Jesus uh, heals the servant and tells Peter to put the sword away. So that, And then we have no mention of the sword, a physical sword, ever being used again. No one thinks that the apostles ever used a sword by your own admission. You don't think that the apostles ever used a sword on anyone. So... If they if they had them for that moment, but they never use them again, then I I think the burden of proof you know doesn't fall upon me t- to carry a sword. I think it falls upon those who would be carrying one without any example in the New Testament. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That was lively and respectful. That's great. Uh, question number two is: Most defenders of gun use against aggressors rely on the right to self-defense or in defense of a vulnerable person. So in other words, a right to life. Is this notion found in the scriptures? And Jerry, you get to go first on this one and I'm starting your timer now. Okay. Uh, So yeah, the idea of a right to life and specifically the idea of self-defense found in the scripture. So uh, Dick had brought up the idea of Exodus 22 earlier. Um, which is a really important text, again, for this concept of self-defense. And you have this idea where someone breaks into, in, in the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, the idea of someone breaking into someone's home in the middle of the night. And if this person, this thief, it, refer, it refers to him as a thief, that if he is indeed, uh, if he breaks in and he's killed and it's dark, well, then there is no culpability. There, there is no, there is no uh, com, you know, command. Uh, commensurate, or there's no retaliation for this man, so to speak. He's not considered guilty. However, if it's during the day, well, then apparently he is guilty. Uh, so, uh, and of course, back in those times, they didn't have a light switch. You could just flip right, right on. So nighttime was nighttime. Uh, and, but today we really live in a kind of perpetual day. We, we always have the ability to have lights on. So it's not really the same, but nonetheless, when we look back at Exodus 22 and we look at this particular verse, which I would say is the strongest verse that we could find for self-defense, what we see here is not really a command. God is not saying you must kill the thief. What God is saying is there's a provision here if it's dark and all of these criteria are met that you can. Well, that's different than commanding someone to kill. And in fact, we actually have commands to kill in the Mosaic law, Sabbath breakers, for example. And so if we want to use a provision from the Mosaic law that says that we can kill a thief, well, then we must keep the law when it says that we must kill the Sabbath breaker. We must kill the rebellious child if we want to kill the thief using the Mosaic law. The Bible tells us that the kidnapper or the man-stealer must be put to death. There is no provision. It's not a provision. It's an absolute command. If you're an adulterer in the Old Testament, you must be stoned. There is no provision here. There's no repentance. There's nothing like this. You must die. So so there are very specific commands in the Old Testament that require the killing of someone. The thief is not one of them. It's a provision. So I would say that's the strongest that we have. And it's not that strong because it's really just a provision. 
Now, the Bible tells us in uh, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So the idea here is that we are to live in a way that doesn't fear death. And I would, I would say that we live in a time now where the idea of physical death is one of the most frightening ideas to all of us. Now, it shouldn't be this way. When Jesus died, he died, us, uh, he died to destroy the works of the devil, he who had the power of death and held people in fear of death. We don't have to fear death because Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. He has, he has freed us from that fear. So death itself, physical death for a Christian, is not scary. It's not something that we should fear. And it's not something that we should go and kill someone to prevent. That would be the wrong way to view it. So if we are clinging to our physical life and we are saying this is more important than anything on earth, well, then I believe we may be prone to make mistakes. We may be prone to prioritize our life over Jesus's commands. But the, the New Testament never condones the idea of Christians. Now, of course, as you mentioned, we're only talking to Christians tonight. People who are not Christians, this is not binding upon them uh, because they are not following Jesus. But those who claim to be following Jesus, well, we're not given the ability to use carnal weapons to engage in homicidal violence against our enemies. We cannot choose homicidal violence without denying our only Lord and Master who commands us to not even hate our enemies. How can we, as bearers of God's mercy and light to the world, resort to carnal weapons to protect our lives, which James says are just nothing but a vapor? So the idea of protecting our life, while it may seem very culturally sound and as if it's the most important thing on earth, Jesus has a different attitude towards this. And I believe that as we read the New Testament, we can see that Jesus is showing us that self-defense is not the top priority. The top priority is to follow Jesus's commands. And he tells us that we're going to die. He, we're all going to die. Everyone's going to die. So we just simply have to be comfortable and understand that that is going to happen to us. And if someone kills us, Jesus doesn't tell us to kill them first. He never tells us that. All right. Thank you, Jerry. All right, Dick, you are up now. The question is, most defenders of gun use against aggressors rely on the right of self-defense or in the defense of a vulnerable person. Is this notion found in the scriptures? So our first encounter with any kind of, uh, it's not even really a legal standard, but the first encounter with the idea that it is wrongful to take another human's life is, of course, in Genesis 4. And we see the terrible consequence of anger and sin in Cain's life and uh, how that results uh, in his killing his brother. And it is interesting, I think, to note from that passage that all of the focus is on the aftermath for Cain, right? None of it is about, oh, isn't this terrible that Abel didn't get to do all these great things, right? Because that wasn't the concern. The concern is this is a guilt that Cain has taken on himself. And now uh, we see this important way where he is not in right relationship with God. And in fact, he is driven away from even access to that family blessing, you know, proximity to family and the terrible consequences of ostracism. And I think it's, it's fair to say that in many ways, Cain was the first outlaw in the, in the British sense of being cast out from society and not having the protections of you know, that sort of nascent society that would have existed at that early point in our history. Uh, of course, we have the outright command, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not 
murder, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so how to translate rasak or how, whatever that Hebrew word is, you'd have to ask the next fella. But I do think clearly it's not just that we see that it grieves God when, when we kill each other, uh, and certainly Cain killing Abel, there was provocation, but it was not legal provocation. Right? He was provoked by God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice. And of course, that's not a just thing to be provoked to anger about. In fact, I, th- I think he should have turned that lens inward and looked at what was wrong in his internal character rather than being mad at his brother for being a, a higher character. But in any case, I do think that we see that there is not just a, a, a sin aspect to killing, but a legal penalty for killing. Uh, and as uh, we were just talking about with Exodus 22 too, there is an outright ban on the prosecution and condemnation of a person who kills a burglar at night. Now, why would there be a different standard for the day? Uh, I don't know. I'm interested to know. I suspect that it's because people are usually asleep at night. And so they are by nature more vulnerable. And a person who goes in where somebody is asleep, maybe you can impute more you know, uh, blame to them than somebody who's breaking in during the day when the family might be out in the field and you think maybe they're just there to take stuff and not to actually find victims. So I think maybe that's an important reason for that legal distinction, but I'm open to further instruction on that. But beyond that, as I mentioned earlier, I do think the strict the scriptures command us uh, to be on the side of the weak and the fatherless and he uses strong words like defend and uphold. But I will agree uh, with Jerry that our hope is not in these frail physical bodies. And that is what Christ taught in Matthew 16, 25. But I don't think that teaching is that we ought to seek death or be indifferent to death. Uh, I do think life is precious. And I, and I think that we're supposed to be diligent in sustaining it generally. Uh, but there are some things worth dying for. And the salvation of sinners and the glorification of God are things worth dying for. And, de- and what I think Jesus was saying is, even if you have the legal right to do something, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. What we're about is this good news that I have given you. And now it's, you know, ultimately it was going to be their job to carry it out there. And I do think that that spirit of being messengers of peace is absolutely what they were commissioned to be. And I don't think that the earlier commission to obtain weapons for the traveler or whatever was an admonition to, hey, gear up for war or gear up for, you know, some kind of battle for righteousness. I I think it was a much more mundane, like, hey, make sure to bring an extra pair of pants, wear your belt, and, you know, strap on that that sword you'd carry. Just a a couple other things with my remaining minute here. I do want to make the distinction between defense, retribution, or revenge. And warfare. And the latter two, Jerry and I are in agreement. I don't think that Christians should be in the revenge business. Uh, and I think that where somebody slaps me in the face and that's their last action, it's not defense to then hit them back. That's vengeance, right? And so I think that vengeance is being condemned when we say turn the other cheek, don't strike back, because that's it. Maybe it's just an insult, but it's certainly some kind of physical insult, you know, element to it. But if I can just stop it, if I can be the end of that violence, I should be, you know, and that is being that long-suffering, generous example. And that's why I should give the cloak or give these other things, walk that extra mile, because I should be generous and give people more than what they're entitled to, because God has given me more than what I'm entitled to. So I'll stop there. All right.
Thank you, uh, Dick, for that. Okay, so now is the time of inquiry. Uh, Jerry, what questions do you have for Dick as a matter of clarification? Go ahead. Uh, I, I really like what he's, what he's saying, uh, and I want, to, I want to concur with what he said as well. Um, you know, if we think about a, a shepherd who lets a wolf break into his, his sheepfold and he just watches, well, this would be evil. So I, I want to make sure that, uh, and we're probably going to get to questions along these lines, as we know, mm -hmm. but, but uh, what I'm certainly not advocating is the idea of watching something happen or some sort of death wish uh, that, that could easily be misconstrued by what I'm saying. What I'm referring to is the fact that we do have a biblical command to defend the defenseless, you know, uh, a child, a, 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 your wife, your spouse, the weaker, the weaker vessel. Absolutely, we want to defend those who are defenseless. That, that's undoubted. The question tonight is not whether we defend or protect innocence. It's not whether we defend or protect the defenseless. What we're talking about tonight is taking a machine of death that explodes people's organs and using that to protect or using that to defend. That's where I think the difference is. So there is no there is no uh, problem on my part defending. There is no problem on my part protecting. That's certainly what I plan on doing. I certainly plan on protecting my wife. I certainly plan on protecting my children from evildoers. But what that looks like for a Christian can't be the same as what it looks like for someone who is not a Christian. Someone who is not a Christian may use all manner of means. He may return evil for evil, before the evil is even perpetrated upon him. He may preemptively kill someone before that person has a chance to kill him. But as Christians, as Christ followers who have a model, this is not something that I believe the New Testament gives us permission to do. So I think I would just go back to Exodus 22 and, and recall that, and maybe just pose this to Dick as, a, as sort of a question, is the fact that in that in that passage of Exodus 22 where it does seem to provide some sort of self-defense you know how can we how can we point to that as some sort of uh, of reasoning or some sort of proof text that we may kill someone who enters our home if we're not willing to kill our child if he talks back to us, because the Mosaic law doesn't give us a choice. It doesn't say that you, you know, you, you may kill your son if he talks back. It doesn't say that if he strikes you, you may consider killing him. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that if the sorceress, you know, is nice, you don't have to, you know, kill her. It says you shall not let the sorceress live. That's the same chapter as mm -hmm. this, as this verse about the, uh, about the thief. So, so what I would say, I guess the question is, is that, how do you reconcile that, Dick? Uh, why, why would you allow the sorceress to live in defiance of the Mosaic law, but kill the thief? So these commands are written differently, right? The syntax is different. And the one, the one relating to the nighttime thief who breaks in, what we would call a burglar, uh, that there's an affirmative defense. 
right? That just says, hey, you can't convict him of anything. There's no affirmative command to go do something. It is, in fact, a negative command to refrain from action. And so, but, but more importantly, it doesn't just say, hey, and a charge of murder shall not stand for him under the, you know, the Israeli criminal code or whatever. It says he's not guilty of bloodshed, right? He's not guilty of that man's blood coming out of his body that happened because he killed him in this nighttime break-in. It's not a guilty act. It's not a blameworthy act. Well, you know what and also, I, but, but, but let know. me just interject there, Dick, and say that it's also not guilty to marry three wives in the Old Testament. It's also not guilty. You're also not guilty if you divorce your wife five times. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and that's you, what we have to talk about, liberty versus expedience, right? And obviously, we, could, we can talk about the law of liberty and, and how I am free to do all these things as a Christian believer where uh, you know, a person under the teaching of the Pharisees would have felt not so free, right? But no. the fact is, even though I may have the liberty to undertake some conduct, if I'm keeping my eyes on the prize, that may just be a distraction, right? And, and I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life and uh, about, oh, I guess it was 10 and a half, 11 years ago, uh, I woke up to the sound of a dog barking and my wife screaming, uh, hey, there's somebody coming in the house. It was about four o'clock in the morning. And my wife is an amazing servant of others and had gone downstairs to feed the baby, trying not to wake me up, right? But uh, so I run downstairs because the dog's sounding off like it's serious and my wife sounds pretty serious. She's trying not to wake me up and now is waking me up. So I grabbed a handgun out of my nightstand and I ran down there and there was a guy coming through my front door. And I will say that his manners greatly improved when he saw the gun in my hand. Uh, and he immediately started explaining that he was actually there because he's hungry. And he points out and there, there's a woman out on the sidewalk that's in a wheelchair, you know, and so it's a pretty pitiful seat. And so I fed that guy and I fed that gal because, uh, uh, you know, the Bible tells us how we're supposed to treat people who are stealing because they're hungry, right? And and in fact, I'm not supposed to despise him because of his human frailty driving him to this particular decision. You're still wrong. He still has to repay. Now, he didn't have to steal because I gave it to him. And, and I do feel like I was able to engage in loving service and Christian ministry to that person that just moments before I was prepared to deal with as a deadly threat because I was 12 feet from my wife and breastfeeding infant child. But I, I do think it was possible. And I think the evidence of this possibly, possibility being real in my life is that my fruits were that I wanted to help him. But we're not having any fair fights at the Clark household at four o'clock in the morning with, with infants in the room. And I, I felt that that was my obligation to be ready, but so relieved to find that it wasn't going to be my obligation to use deadly force. And, and I do think that that turned into an opportunity to show somebody how Christ loves people. And I do think that's what I did there. And the police didn't get involved. Uh, and in fact, I've often been, when I've told the story, I've been criticized for not calling the police, but I'm not interested in the vengeance business. And I'm not going to call the state's vengeance agents to come get somebody. But I really don't think that my being there with a credible threat of, hey, you're not going to win this fight was wrong. And I think it did lead to the point where there was that ministry opportunity, as opposed to, you know, calling the police and, you know, cloistering the family upstairs. I think that that would have been less Christ-like than the direct confrontation. And, you know, I commended him, believe me, not in these words, but I commended him, go and sin no more, right? I wasn't admitting that what he was doing was right coming to my house. But he left, I think, feeling like I wanted him to have a better day than he'd had the day before. And I just, again, from my own sample set of one, that was my defensive gun use. And I, I can honestly confess to you that there wasn't any hate in my heart for that guy. 
I was concerned for my wife and child. But once the danger was over, I, I wanted to put some love on him. And I think I did a little bit, you know, not as much as maybe what I could have done. But I, I just, you know, so I do, th- I don't think that it was inexpedient for me to use what I think is clearly a legal right. I don't even think that was inexpedient as to the gospel ministry in that circumstance. Uh, and I do think that, of course, Christ uses the example of fathers and their protective attitude towards their children as a type of God the Father, right? He's showing us how God the Father loves us and cares for us. Uh, and and the whole sequence about, hey, you know, if your son asks you for bread, would you give him a stone? Would you give him a snake instead of a fish? I think that's a citation to this inborn instinct that God put in us to protect our children. And I, and I don't think that that is... Uh, giving into the flesh, although certainly it can be, and people can, can be quick to anger and people can be quick to violence. And those things are absolutely condemned. And I'm not trying to say otherwise, but I'm not sure that embracing love of your family's life is the same thing as hating your enemy. All right. I'm going to go to the next question here, um, which is uh, actually pretty uh, timely because we have uh, somebody in the comments sort of asking something very similar, which I'm about to ask, which is question number three. And Dick, you're going to go first here. What limits are there to the measures a Christian may take to keep their loved ones protected from harm against an aggressor? So, as I was just saying, I think we should be slow to violence. And I think that it's much better to prepare to deny access to victims than to get into the gunfight at OK Corral or whatever your metaphorical comparison is, right? I, you know, denying access through locks on the doors is a passive means where I don't have to even worry about violence if I've got that secure, you know, barred entry. But if we get to that point where someone is going to harm my loved ones, there are limitations on that, certainly. Uh, The most famous one uh, is the law of proportionality that's famously rendered in Leviticus 24 as fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that's the law, and it pertains to both self-defense and retributive uh, acts or, or damages. But I want to make clear that's not setting a, I don't believe that's setting a minimum standard. I believe it's setting a maximum standard as well uh, in the sense that it's saying you can't take two teeth for a tooth, right? You can't go back and inflict greater retribution on that person than what they inflicted on you, nor are you entitled to damages greater than that, right? But that's all about what happens after the fight is over, right? After the violent confrontation is over. That's vengeance or retribution or, you know, something in that category. Uh, But when we're talking about defense, I think that the limit is, you know, obviously your defensive force has to be proportional too. You know, if I saw, oh, for example, my, when I got home from work today, my kid was out playing basketball in the park with some bigger kids. And if I saw some bigger kids laying into my son, we're not, they're not going to get shot, right? I'm going to run over and I'm just going to put my body between them and, and him. And that's the you know, least amount of force necessary to obtain the result, right? Of ending the unlawful force. And so uh, that is the legal standard, by the way. But frankly, I think that, and, and again, this part, I think Jerry would agree with, Christians should loathe violence. We shouldn't be looking for ways to be violent. Uh, and so that reluctance should translate into the minimum. Now, this is the part where we'll differ. It should translate into the minimum amount of force used for that defensive purpose. Uh, and again, I think that that is what uh, Christ is commanding his followers uh, as to in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In verses 38 to 48 in Matthew 5, he's telling people, 
you know, look, the law says that you're entitled to this, but I'm commending to you that for my purposes, it's greater if you don't take everything you're owed. If you are generous in taking less than what technically you are entitled to take, whether that's in terms of vengeance or damages. And I, and I would never dispute that the Christians should be generous. And the fact that a, a debt is legitimately owed to us does not mean we have a duty to collect that debt. And likewise, the fact that self-defense is lawful does not mean that it's mandatory for the believer. And indeed, I think there are many cases where the superior action and the way to follow the commands and the example of Christ is through, you know, uh, you know, allowing that person to inflict the harm on me and showing them that love in that way. So I, I don't think we're so far apart on that. But yet I do not think that it's appropriate to condemn a person who uses what we've established as lawful defensive force within the bounds of proportionality because they're not my servant, right? And so uh, it's not that I want to say you must do this. You must engage in defensive force at every opportunity to be a good Christian. I don't think that's true. And I would never say that. Uh, and, and I also want to say, I don't think that people should get so preoccupied with this that it's evidence of their lack of trust in the Lord, right? I mean, if, if I'm trusting in that sword, I mean, it's the very same problem that Israel, you know, got hired a king for. Hey, we're scared of the neighbors, right? We need some big tall guy who can lead us into battle. I mean, that was ultimate reason. Uh, and that was an inadequate faith in God as their salvation. And so they put their faith in this human ruler. And I, and I would absolutely admonish believers that, you know, if you're treating that gun like that one ring in Tolkien's story, right, where, oh, I'm just treasuring this and all my hopes and love are just pent up in this thing, you got a sin problem, brother. You got an idolatry problem. Uh, but I just, I don't think mere defense crosses that line over into that, making it an idol or necessarily being quick to anger, quick to violence. All right. Thank you, Dick. And Jerry, all right. Question, what limits are there to the measures a Christian may take to keep their loved ones protected from harm against an aggressor? Uh, again, I have to commend Dick on his temperament here and upon his answers. Uh, I've talked to various people uh, who hold his similar position, but without his uh, good nature and without his, I think, I think his biblical grounding. And so it's very refreshing. Um, but he did, uh, Dick did bring up the idea of uh, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, we may differ on this because when, when Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verses 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also to him. And he goes on and then he mentions how you've also heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, he, he goes on and says, but I tell you to love your enemies. Now, what's important to know about this eye for an eye is that this is the law of retaliation. If you do, if you do a search for eye for eye, in the Old Testament, you'll see that it appears three times. It appears in Exodus 21, uh, which was back in that part of the Mosaic law we were talking about with the thief. And it specifically talks about a situation where two men are warring and they hurt a pregnant woman with child. Okay. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he is abolishing the law of retaliation. He is not making any suggestions. Jesus is not in the suggestion business. He is, he is the lawgiver. If Moses was a lawgiver, then Jesus is the lawgiver extraordinaire. And Jesus is the supreme interpreter of the Mosaic law. He's not making suggestions. He's not making 
slight suggestions that he put, that he wants us to think about. He is laying down the real law and the real law is what? No retaliation, no retaliation. And then he specifically goes back to eye for an eye. Now the Jews knew that this was in the old Testament, that it was in the Mosaic law, that they had a right to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They knew that they had this, but Jesus is telling them, I'm telling you, don't do that. It also appears in Deuteronomy 19, where someone is a false witness and they're trying to get someone killed. It was pretty easy to get killed underneath the, the Mosaic law. You, it wasn't too difficult. And if you had a couple of false witnesses who testified against you, they could get you killed. He said, if this is an eye for an eye instance, okay, we also have a, another one where a man injures his neighbor. He physically harms his neighbor. Okay, well, this is an eye for an eye moment. Jesus is referring to these instances and he's repudiating the idea that we should have that we should do eye for an eye. Now, why do we know this? Why why would why would he even say this? Well, as you get to the end of that chapter, uh, Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling you that you're, the reason why we're doing these things is not for some sort of science fair project. It's not because there's some new law that Jesus is making up. He makes it clear that this is who God is. That God doesn't do this. He doesn't do eye for an eye. He doesn't do foot for foot. He doesn't do burn for burn. And we, and we know this because Jesus doesn't do eye for an eye or burn for burn or foot for foot. And so he's saying we have to be like God. How? By not doing eye for an eye. Now, we want to do eye for an eye. We want to get divorced. We want to have 10 wives. We want to kill the thief. We want to do all of these things. We want to kill the sorceress. We want to kill... The, the child who talks back. We want to do a lot of these things. That's what our flesh wants. But that's not what Jesus is telling us to do because that's not what God does. God doesn't do these things and he never changes. So it, it wasn't that he used to do eye for an eye. Now he doesn't. He never did eye for an eye. Jesus is saying, if you, you need to be sons of your father. So you have to be like him. So how are we like him? We're like him whenever we don't do or, com or demand eye for an eye. Now, when we think about this, this question of what are the limits, again, the answer to this question can only be found in the life of Christ. And if we follow the Prince of Peace, and we follow the gospel of peace and teach the gospel of peace and walk in the way of peace, we're not going to need, uh, we're going to find we don't need weapons of death. We're not going to need carnal weapons. Now, when we ask what are the limits that we may use to commit retaliation, or, or to uh, retaliate against, or even to preemptively kill someone before they can kill us. This is reminiscent of maybe a teenage son or a teenage daughter asking their father or mother, what are the limits of fornication? You know, can I go to first base? Can I go to second base? Can I go to third base? Well, none of those are, are legitimate. Uh, whenever you begin to ask, what are the limits? How far can I go? Well, we know that we've got a problem. Now, that the last thing I would say on this is that when it comes to the limits of what we can do, some people may not want to use a gun, and we're debating guns tonight, but some people may not be comfortable using guns. So we might ask the question, if we want to talk about limits, we might think in terms of what limits, what types of killing would be allowed. So if we do encounter an enemy and we want to maybe use a gun on him, well, that might be one option, but what if we're not comfortable with guns? What if we say, I would rather drown the enemy? Or, or maybe we would rather burn the enemy alive like they used to do. Or, or maybe beat him to death with a baseball bat. 
Is that acceptable? Or, or maybe stoning. I mean, that's very biblical. It would be biblical to stone the person. So can we stone our enemies? Or can we slit their throat? I mean, the, the point is, is that guns keep our fingernails clean. So we don't have to strangle the person. We don't have to look at them in the eyes while we're killing them. So, so the, the limits of, of what are, 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 are what are allowed when it comes to seeking vengeance against those who want to do us harm, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, no matter what we do to the person, if we want to kill them, we can kill them with a baseball bat. We can kill them with a gun. We can kill them by slitting their throat. We can kill them with a, with a rock. We can kill them by burning them. We can stick their head underwater and not bring it up for a minute. But are any of these things what Jesus would do? Just because it's a gun and just because it's acceptable in our culture, well, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, right now, guns are popular, but what if drowning was popular? What if that was the culturally acceptable way to kill? Would we think that's fine? Well, what, what if stoning was the way that we would kill our enemies, like it was back in the Old Testament? Is that okay? Would that be all right? So what I'm saying is, is that guns are a very acceptable today, acceptable means of dealing with situations and dealing with conflict. There's certainly a way of dealing with conflict on a national level when it comes to, to war. It's certainly a way of dealing with interpersonal conflict when it comes to protection. And while evildoers may use weapons, they may use guns, it doesn't mean that that should provoke a Christian who is following Christ to resort to a gun to make sure that they can do the evil to the evildoer before the evildoer has a chance to do evil to them. So where I stand on this is that while we are to defend our families and while we are to protect the innocent, we must not think that we must resort to the weapons of evildoers to do this. Because we're Christians, we have to follow a different path. We have to follow a different way. And we have to look like Jesus in the end. If we don't, we can be forgiven. It's not as if it's some sort of unforgivable sin because many, I mean, my, myself, I am the chief of sinners. I've certainly, I've certainly broken Jesus's laws over the course of my life. I'm no perfect man, uh, but Jesus will forgive. But if we don't know where the standard is, well, we're never going to be able to please God. So if, if we know for a certainty that this is a sin and this is a sin, well, we have to know where the sin is when it comes to this. And I would say the limits are that if we inadvertently kill someone, but we were never planning it, we never had a gun, we were never planning on, it had never entered our mind to kill someone, but we are put into a situation where we have no other choice but to stop a, a, an intruder or to stop someone who's trying to do harm to innocence. Well, we may die in the process, but if we kill in the process, there's forgiveness for this. But if we're premeditating that, if we have a gun in our house and we are waiting, lying in wait for the person to come in and we're ready to kill him before he kills us, I would say this is premeditated murder. If we buy weapons and we keep them and we prepare to use them against evildoers before evildoers can use them against us, I would say this is a line too far. If someone wants to do us harm, God, God can protect us just as he protected Jesus, just as he protected the disciples. But at the same time, if he doesn't, well, that's okay because he holds the keys. So there's no death wish here. There's just simple, there's simply a wish not to violate expressly Jesus's commands that are very clear. Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality. 
but I would imagine that most Christians would say that Jesus is completely against homosexuality. Jesus doesn't say anything about uh, you know, many other sins as well, uh, but we know that many people have a firm opinion. But Jesus very specifically tells us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. And for some, for some, they don't care. They just simply don't care. All right. Thank you, Jerry. I'm glad there's no Old Testament law for people to go over their time on a debate. <laughs> that might not that might not bode well for for that. Uh, but uh, no, I, I jest a little bit. Uh, Dick, I'm going to give you some uh, time here to uh, to, Sorry, to do I don't know inquiry. If I've got enough to challenge the time limit. What's uh, that? I don't know if I've got notes enough to challenge the time limit. Ah, uh, okay, I I'll, see. I'll well, just, just I want to remind you guys. Uh, let's keep these uh, as as pithy as we can in terms of you know just inquiry and curiosity. We'll we'll get to some other things uh, down the road here. So the question pertains to protecting loved ones from harm, and I just want to make clear that I I am not on a side of this debate where I am arguing for vengeance. I'm not arguing for you know, punishments because they will achieve some deterrent effect for future or whatever. I'm, I'm radically anti-vengeance. So we're, we're on the same page when it comes to vengeance, which means going back and taking your due from somebody after they've done something to you. But that's not what self-defense is. Self-defense is not about the death of the aggressor. It is not about the injury of the aggressor. It is about stopping the aggression. And the desired result is not a dead burglar. Their desired result is the end of the burglar. Uh, and, and burglary is a bad example because actually mere burglary, I would say I wouldn't go there. Uh, deadly force. I've got to believe that somebody's about to die, be seriously injured, be raped or kidnapped. Those are the four things under the under man's law here in my state. And I happen to think that's a pretty good list. But to the but to me, that helps me answer the question about, well, what about if I wanted to carry, you know, a flamethrower for self-defense and burn them or drown them now? The impression that I got that as we were talking about episodes that were really more about capital punishment, more about vengeance, either by the state or by the community or by some group of people. Uh, but again, I'm not, I don't think Christians should be in the vengeance business. So I, I mean, the practical answer to why you wouldn't use those instrumentalities is because they're not useful for this purpose. You can't carry a defensive fire in your pocket. You can't carry a, you know, a bathtub in your pocket. Uh, and so really, I think the type of weapon is a practical concern, but certainly I, you know, I wouldn't be interested in something that is, you know, intended to just produce more suffering uh, because that's not the point. The point is to have a tool to make person who's in a disadvantage more on level ground or have the advantage. Uh, and, and I don't view acquisition of guns as premeditated murder anymore that i view acquisition of a fire extinguisher as premeditation for having a fire in my kitchen. I just think that there might be a fire breakout. That, and that, I want to that, be that's able a, to that's a very, not to interrupt you, but that's a very different uh, uh, thing. I mean, a fire extinguisher is clearly not a sin. You know, a, a, a gun is designed specifically to kill. There's nothing, no other purpose. I mean, you can even find some redeeming qualities in a sword. I mean, a sword you know, you can use to cut things, you can use it for fishing, you can use it for other hunting and all kinds of things, you know, but with a gun specifically, there are no other uses for it. It's literally only designed to kill. There's no other purpose for the gun. So it's not like a fire extinguisher. It's not, it's not even like a knife. Yeah, a gun is specifically designed to kill another human being. And so for I'm that gonna, reason, it has, it has to simply not be a part of 
a Christian's toolbox. In my I'm going to take a moderator's prerogative here um, and ask an, a, a, a question here. Jerry, you've often said that uh, guns are designed only to kill, and that, that is true. They're designed to have that capacity. Would you be... What, what the, the question is about limits. What about harming only? Like you, like you said, the benefit of a sword could be that it, you know, well, you said a sword could have benefits, um, but in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, there's an aggressor. I could, you know, use it to not kill. Uh, and you could do this with a gun. You don't have to kill. Dick didn't have to, well, he didn't actually have that. It ended up being a really good story, but uh, Dick doesn't have to kill. He's probably armed. What, he's probably trained well enough to actually just simply maim the guy. And maybe even if I knew Dick well enough, he'd pay for the guy's hospital bills. Um, is is that a limit for you? That's like, well, okay, Christians can use guns, but they just they're just absolutely not allowed to kill. That would be like walking into a party with a condom in my pocket and saying, "I'm I'm I'm just you know I'm, I don't want I don't want I don't want to have sex. I don't want to have, but just in case, you know." And to me, to, that creates a temptation. So having the gun in my hand and saying, "I'm not going to use it." It's just for deterrence purposes is like tempting God. So I, I would say that would probably not be a thing. Uh, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. I think that if we take Jesus's word seriously on this matter, that we will stay far away from these machines of death, that they are that serious. There are more guns than people in America. We have seen a tremendous amount of bloodshed through guns. It's an, it's a, it's an emergency in this country. The number one killer of children in this country are firearms. That's I not true, think, sir. That is I, a lie. I, I, I don't I'm sorry. think. Uh, well, that's only if you say that infants are not children and that, and that college freshmen and sophomores are children. That is a cooked statistic for the purpose of policy advocacy. It is not truthful. Well, let, let, let me let me say what children are children. I actually I actually want you guys to bring uh, talk about the the gun culture societal stuff here. Yeah, it's yeah, actually, we're actually going to bring that up. It's actually an assumed question, so we are going to bring that up. Yeah, we'll and, uh, yeah, no, 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 it's fine. Um, I, I like heated exchanges. Um, I don't know how well I'm going to be at moderating it, but, uh, yeah. Um, we're getting there. Sorry. He, there was an interrupted exchange. Jerry, do you have a, do you want to wrap that up? Yeah. Yeah. We'll go ahead and move on to the next question for the sake oh, okay. of time. Yeah. Ex excellent. Um, in, in some ways, this next question is, so, has somewhat been answered in the previous ones. Um, and so, and for the sake of time, I'm probably just going to give you guys like three minutes because honestly, yeah, this is, this should be pretty, pretty easy here. Uh, question number four. Um, and let me just, uh, get the screen up here better. Um, and, uh, Jerry, you're going to go first on this. What is the proper Christians? What is the proper Christian posture toward a person about to act lethally harmful to them or a vulnerable person near them. Um, yes. Uh, Dick's, Dick's story might have been a good example yeah. of this, but I'll let you answer it as you've prepared. Okay, so you're right. Uh, this, is a, this is a really good question. We've kind of, we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but I, I would say the, the right answer here, biblically, from, from Christ's perspective, which as Christians, this is what we are concerned with. We're not really concerned with what the culture has to say. We're not concerned with what the Constitution has to say. We're not concerned with what man's laws have to say. We're concerned with what Jesus's law says. And the law of Christ tells us to overcome evil with good and not to return evil for evil. That's the standard. Now, that's the standard. Just like we know that, that uh, you know, one man and one woman, that's the standard. Nobody seems to have a problem with this. They, they want that standard. They want to know what the standard is so they don't break it. Well, when it comes to guns and when it comes to, you know, uh, vengeance and when it comes to killing, and by the way, if you, if you point a gun at somebody and shoot them, 
That's called vengeance, especially uh, if that person was coming to kill you. I mean, you're certainly committing vengeance here. This is like the blood avenger in the Old Testament. But the standard is we don't overcome evil with more evil. We don't use the weapons of the evildoer against the evildoer and call it good. That's not what God does, and that's not what we do. Uh, It's also the standard that we love our enemies, and we can't love them by sticking a gun in their face and pulling the trigger. So the way that I would answer this question, what's the proper Christian posture towards a person about to act lethally harmful to me or to my family or to you or to your family? would be to assume that that person that was about to act was the person that you loved the most. If that person who was getting ready to do the harm was the person that you love the most, would you pick up a gun, put it at their face, and pull the trigger? And if the answer is no, then we've discovered that there is a thing called mercy in our hearts. And if we only display this mercy to those we love, but not to those we hate, well, then we're no different from the pagans because Jesus says, if you just love your own, well, then that's what the pagans do. You've got to love the enemy just the way you love your your own. So I would say the proper Christian posture towards someone who's getting ready to do something lethally harmful would be to do exactly what you would do to the person if that person was the person you love the most, your spouse, your father your mother, who, whoever it is you love the most, would you break out a gun? And would that be the very first thing that you thought? Well, I got to stop this. I'm going to shoot him in the face. Okay, well, if that's exactly, if that's what you would do to your mother, father, or your spouse, or your child, well, then maybe that's the right answer for you. But, but I would say that the proper Christian posture is to react toward the enemy the same way, with the same kind of mercy and compassion that you would show to the person that you love the most. That's my answer. So I don't think it's merciful to allow people to persist in sin that, that harms others and causes victims. I don't view that as merciful. But I, I also just want to point out vengeance, both in the English language and the word that is translated as vengeance in the Greek New Testament, ekdikesis, uh, ek, uh, those are referring to punishment. They are things that happen after an event has occurred in order to impose some punishment or retribution on the wrongdoer. It's just not the same concept as defense. And to claim that people acting to interpose between a killer and you know my child or whoever the victim is going to be is engaged in vengeance is just you're redefining the word in a way that is not the common usage in the English language. And it's certainly not the biblical usage. That is not vengeance. Those are differentiated. Uh, So vengeance is not punishment. And again, I think that God gave me as a father, the protective instincts that I have. You know, I think that he gave my wife the instinct to jerk that little child back from the road when the car's coming, right? And that is a good inborn instinct that God created us with because I do too. And so, uh, and the same, you know, with uh, feeding a child who complains of being hungry, right? I just, it hurts my heart to know my child has hunger pangs, right? I mean, and that's, and that's something that changed in me when, when I became a parent. And I think God baked that into me uh, so that I would be a better father, right? And so I don't think that those instincts are fleshly or wrongful. 
I can I can tell you that certainly the righteous indignation that would come from the father in my little hypothetical that I'm constructing here, it can give way to sinful hate. Absolutely it can. And uh, there was an example here in Lincoln about 10 years ago on the 4th of July, this kid ran out and bounced off the side of some guy's car while he was driving by. Guy didn't know he'd hit anybody. In fact, hadn't hit the kid. Kid was okay. Kid just bounced into his car. But kid's dad saw it and went with his handgun and three other friends to go get some vengeance. And the guy who they were going to go murder happened to be prepared. And he killed the dad who was shooting at him at that moment, shot the second guy. And the other two guys decided that that was enough attempted killing that night. Uh, but that wave of anger that came from a, you know, it, it came from that good instinct initially of that father saying, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, my child could have been killed right there. Right. And he had a very intense rush of emotions, I'm sure. And, and I do think that him going to seek vengeance, which is not defense, right? The guy's long gone. This is clearly an act of vengeance. And that is absolutely immoral and sinful and of course, criminal, but we're here to talk about, you know, as believers, not about what the state can punish our flesh for necessarily. But uh, I think he took that fatherly instinct that God put in him and he perverted it to this end of wanting to go out and, and get vengeance because he thought that that guy had, had endangered his child. So certainly that instinct can be perverted, just like the, the drive to, you know, sex or the drive to hunger, those things can be perverted but I don't think the drive is innately sinful itself. All right. Any clarification questions, uh, Jerry? And let's keep them pithy here because we don't want to run out of time for the audience to ask questions and for you guys to do a little bit more cross-examination. We still got a few more questions here. I'm good. You're good. All right. All right. Well, Dick, on question number five, um, you are up first. I'm going to leave that up for you. Does a Christian embrace of a gun culture run afoul of Jesus's admonition to not live by the sword. It can. Absolutely it can. And I, you know, I taught rifle and shotgun shooting at a Boy Scout camp when I was a teenager and taught archery. And, you know, that's where I learned marksmanship was as a, a scout showing up for the merit badge classes. And that's where I learned safe, you know, firearms handling. But then when I was in college, I went and I was working in a gun store. And so working in that gun store, about three weekends a month, I was traveling within the state of Alabama, which is where I was at at that time. Uh, to go to gun shows with my boss and we'd go on Friday night and set up all these tables and price everything, walk around, make sure that nobody else's prices are leaving room for us to make some more profit than, than we had priced ours for and all that. But inevitably at these gun shows, and unfortunately a lot of gun stores that you go to, you will see a culture of celebrating killing. And I think that is harmful and I think it's sinful and I don't want any Christian to look at that and, and think that that's what I'm advocating for. Because I don't think that celebrating killing is Christ-like, okay? The only, the only celebration we do of death every year at my church is on Easter. And then it's about the resurrection, right? We had a Good Friday service and then a, a resurrection service on Sunday morning. But I don't want, and I certainly do not teach my children to celebrate killing. And, and you know, you see it with a lot of firearms accessories, like the, the jokey ones where the muzzle will be engraved. It says, you know, smile, wait for flash, or the, you know, they'll have various punisher stuff on there, you know, it's cool. You know, uh, I worry about that. I really do. And I, and I don't encourage people to do that. And by the way, I think it's legally hazardous as a defender to look like you're out to find a way to kill somebody. And if that's in your heart, I, you shouldn't be caring. 
Uh, so a gun culture that celebrates killing is absolutely anti-Christ, is not Christ-like. But I do believe that a culture that ensures early education on topics like, say, firearms handling, on fundamentals of marksmanship, I don't think that per se conflicts with the Christian walk. Uh, but again, you can be tempted from the from the latter into the former. Uh, and uh, certainly when you start, you know, just as you can do with money, forgetting that it's an instrumentality and treating it as an end unto itself or as an emblem of your power or something or your greatness, boy, you're, you're deep in, in sin right there and you need to get out. And I know a guy who can help with that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I do think there can be a positive gun culture. I think certainly, you know, like my, uh, my oldest, I took him out deer hunting last year uh, and he shot his first deer at 10 years old at 145 yards with a suppressed 300 blackout rifle. And the only thing that rifle is really good for uh, is shooting targets or shooting, you know, game, in my opinion. That's what I bought it for. Uh, I, I would mention I have a perfect record of never shooting a, a human being, and I've, and I've expended tens of thousands of rounds, uh, and they've all been into paper targets or into animals that I ate later. Uh, and so, I, you know, being prepared for something to happen doesn't mean hoping that it happens or desiring that it happens. And it doesn't even mean that when the situation presents itself that you have to go that route. Certainly, a gun is not the first option I go to. Uh, and I'm, you know, I lead my church security team and guess what? I've got pepper spray. Okay. Because I would much prefer if a hurting person comes into our church that while we want to minimize the risk of harm to others from them lashing out out of their hurt, our first job is to minister to hurting people, right? We want sick people to go to the hospital. We want hurting people to come to church. But I think part of my stewardship responsibility as somebody who is now an elder person in that church, you know, a deacon and other positions of authority I think I need to worry about the least of these, about those children, about the infants in the nursery, about the elderly people. And I don't think that it is loving to anybody to not be prepared to act in case of, of a bad actor coming in the building. But even so, I hope nobody ever gets shot, even in that circumstance, right? I want them to know the Lord. I don't want them to go meet the other guy because, you know, we had to put a stop to a murder spree. I, I much prefer that it be a gospel delivery occasion than an occasion for, for any kind of violence. Uh, and that's what we go to church for. And we, it shouldn't be a distraction. And we don't want it to be a distraction. And, you know, at the end of the day, we should not fear that man or that woman. And, and this isn't about fear. It's about diligent preparation for things that we can foresee. Just like, uh, you know, planting in the spring to harvest in the fall, in, in, a, in a sense, that we... we expect certain things and we want to prepare for those expectancies. Excellent. All right, Jerry, does a Christian embrace of a gun culture run afoul of Jesus's admonition to not live by the sword? Yes, it absolutely positively does. Uh, let's, let's explain why. Culture means way of life. It means way of life. We know what gun means. So gun culture means gun way of life. Should Christians have a gun way of life? That's the question. Does it run afoul of Jesus's commands to have a gun way of life? Well, we can look at the disciples and say, yeah, that, that actually is the case because the disciples never used their sword and plunged it into anyone's belly. Now, I'm hearing what uh, Dick is saying, and on the surface of it, although I agree with much of what he's, what he's saying, and certainly the spirit of what he said, what he's saying in some ways 
makes it sound not really what's going on here. It's almost a little deceptive because the idea here is, is the fact that he, he wants to have a gun or he thinks that Christians should have a gun just in case, just in case. Well, when we look back at the disciples, we find that these men were living in very dangerous times. Dare I say, they lived in more dangerous times than we did. I would say that the disciples lived in more dangerous times than we did. And yet the disciples never plunged a, a sword into anybody's neck, back, face, or anything, never into their belly. So how is it that the disciples never had to use swords against their enemies, though they had many enemies and were wildly misunderstood? And yet us, who live today, are in more danger than the disciples that we may need to use weapons against our enemies? We may have to do that. It just may be something that we have to do, even though they didn't. Look, you can't follow Bonnie and Clyde through nonviolence, okay? You just simply can't. And so, therefore, you can't follow Jesus through violence. It just doesn't work. Now, as we were talking about earlier, talking about this gun culture, Americans do have a love affair with guns. According to a 2020 report, there were more than 434 million firearms in the country. That's more guns than people. There has been more Americans that have died from domestic gunfire since 1968 in this country than all the wars of this country's history combined. Mass shootings have become a common occurrence in this country. And I'll say it again, firearms have become the number one cause of death for American children. The reason why Americans are so powerless at dealing with this, the reason why America is seized up and is paralyzed and not able to protect its own children in the schoolhouses, the reason why it cannot protect its own people in the church houses, the reason why it feels uh, taken hijacked by guns is because they falsely believe that God has given them a right to these weapons of death. Now, other countries don't believe this. Not every country believes that God has given them the right to carry a weapon. Not all countries believe this. America is a special kind of special case in the fact that it believes that God, that that is the, the God that we know through Jesus Christ, has given us the right to carry guns, weapons of death, in this country. Now, Jesus never advocated the sword, let alone these modern machines of death, as an effective means of conflict resolution. He never did. So I believe that the only carnal weapons that are available to Christ's disciples, that is, that is us, belong to our adversary. I believe that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And the, the James tells us to not be deceived. Don't be deceived, brethren. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. I want, to, I want to convey to you that a gun is not a good and perfect gift. It is a it is a machine of death. The Bible talks about in the last days there will be inventions of evil. I would say that a gun is an invention of evil. Uh, the gunpowder was first invented in China more than a thousand years ago. I do not believe that God inspired China to develop gunpowder. I don't believe that God inspired men to develop grenades or, or flamethrowers or nuclear bombs. I believe these weapons of death are not from God our Father, 
but for, are from the God of this world that Paul calls Satan. So I do believe that guns are a God-given right. I believe that they are given by the wrong God. I believe they are given by the God of this world. And that if we believe that, that God our Father in Christ gives us guns for us to carry as a right, I believe that we believe the wrong thing. Now, if we, and I'll, I'll wrap this up because I know we've got to keep moving, but if, if we define a false god or an idol as something that we trust in to protect us when all else fails, well, then we can certainly qualify guns as a, a false god or as an idol. And so in conclusion, I would just simply say that I believe that guns are American idols. They're deceptive saviors and they're antichrist in design. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Dick, do you have any uh, clarification questions? Let's keep them brief because we're going to move on to some uh, media topics. Does Jesus never command evil? Is there anything that Jesus commanded any person at any time to do that would have been evil for them to follow his command to do? Yes or no? Uh, God doesn't tempt us with evil. No. Okay. So at no time did Jesus issue a command that would have resulted in immoral conduct had the command been followed. Jesus does not tempt us to do evil. Right. Okay. So Jesus instructed the disciples to prepare, including to possess arms. Now, the fact is they were armed, some of them. And the fact is uh, these believers who were armed, as you have repeated several times, never stabbed anybody because they weren't carrying swords hoping to stab somebody. They were believers. And so that wasn't the purpose of having the swords. And so I think that is a demonstration, a very important one, uh, and one for us to consider as perhaps uh, one of the models from the Bible to, to apply in our own life, is that they didn't act in a manner that was quick to hang. Now, Peter was, right? And Peter was, uh, was corrected, right? He was rebuked by Christ, and we've already discussed that episode. But the fact is, if you're saying that implements that make it more possible for me to inflict an injury are per se evil and that, and that it is sinful for me to possess them, that to me is, is clearly contradicted by the words of Christ at the Last Supper and his interaction with his disciples. And I don't think that making everybody resort to rocks or fists is merciful. I think that's just strong arm rule. And, you know, uh, there is the, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not crazy about this saying, but there's a kernel of truth in it, you know, that God made man and Samuel Colt made them equal or something. Now, that's not really true, right? We're all image bearers in God's image. But that little kernel of truth there is that two people who have firearms, really their physical strength is not at issue anymore, right? Or their physical size. Uh, and to some extent, the numbers on either side matter less, right? If one side's armed and the other one isn't, you got numbers against the armed guy, maybe your numbers aren't going to help you. So I don't think it's merciful or, or benevolent to advocate for strong arm rule. And, and again, I, I just encourage you to do your own, re, your own research from the CDC numbers, which is a, a fairly good data set on child deaths. Firearms are not the leading cause of death among children. They're the leading cause of death among 18 and 19 year olds. And if you, fact, if you include 18 and 19 year olds as children, and you do not allow that first year of life to be called a, a child, because most of the death there is related to, you know, postpartum, you know, causes of mortality that really only happened in the first year of life. But that's how they've cooked the books to arrive at the stat. And I, and I just hope that you'll go look at those CDC all-cause mortality 
stats because you will see that in every category of child, uh, either drowning or falls, uh, you know, and then finally you get some some auto accidents. And but it's it is not guns, uh, and that is a policy advocacy talking point that's been published in the New York Times in a full page ad by a, a Bloomberg funded group. And, and it is absolutely an illustration of, of the great book, How to Lie with Statistics. You redefine a word and then you keep drilling down, the, you know, using that word, but you don't tell people that you've redefined it. So they assume that it's the common meaning, but it's not. And in this case, again, I would consider zero to 12 month old infants children. And I would not consider people who are old enough to vote to be children. And your stat is only true if you make those changes to the definition of children. So uh, Jerry, just one quick interjection here for Dick. Sure. Dick, would you be able to, by the time this goes on our podcast, would you be able to provide some of the, the links to those, those statistics? Oh yeah. Okay. Thanks. Gary, yeah. Jerry, you can uh, ask here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not only is that fact true, that's stat true, but also the, the number one likelihood of a person who owns a gun is to put a bullet in their own head. The number one use of weapons in this country is suicide. Full stop. Th th these these are not gifts from God. Can God you clarify not, what you mean by that, Jerry? No, when use when you say that hunting. I mean, yeah, no, no. no the number one. True. So so if you look at the number of deaths in the in the United States from guns, you'll find mm -hmm. that the number one cause of death from firearms is, or the number okay. one uh, type of death from firearms is suicide. That's okay. the number mm -hmm. one cause, or whatever we want to call it. It, that's but sure. let's let's go yeah. back to let's go back to the idea of Jesus telling his disciples to carry swords. Uh, just real quick, yes or no questions here. I just want to uh, just real quick rebuttals here. Uh, it, 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 are you saying that it's a sin not to carry? Jesus commanded his disciples to to get swords. Are are we sinning if we don't carry one, uh, Dick? Because no, Jesus said to. Okay, I think I think that, and don't don't indulge me if you don't feel it appropriate, but. I think he was telling them to prepare for the road and it's kind of like hitch up your pants and get right. I, I think it was uh, not literally sinful for them to do what he had said, but I don't think he was trying to make sure each of them had like all of these specific items on an equipment list. I think he was readying them for dangerous travels ahead. Okay. Well then who are they planning? Who are they going to kill with these swords? Well, as I've said again and again, you don't necessarily have to kill anybody. And in fact, the vast, vast majority of defensive weapons do not involve the inflicting of any injuries on another person. So he, uh, he, it, wanted, he wanted them to carry the swords for the, for the appearance of evil. Well, no, because they, you wouldn't have had them visible. These would have been likely concealed weapons. I mean, these were like Bowie knives or so, small so swords. He, so he, he, wanted the, about he wanted them to carry the weapons, but to never use them. Is that right? I don't know if he wanted him to ever use them. I think that, as we've already discussed, I think that it is both lawful and sometimes commendable, as under the teachings of Christ, to act in defense of self or others. And that would be the instrument at that time that would have been the most expedient for that use. How many times did the disciples use those swords outside of Gethsemane? We're not told of any times. Zero but that doesn't times. Mean that, but we can't prove the negative, can we? So are you accusing the apostles of using their swords outside of Gethsemane? How many no, people? I how can't many prove people it either. There's no evidence to the, to the question. Well, if you answer. had to guess, if you had to guess, how many people did the apostles kill with those swords? If you just had to I, guess. Under, I don't imagine that they killed any. But they carried them. Yeah. Why would they carry them if they're never going to use them? The same reason that I carry a gun and, and have only ever used it once for defensive purposes. Okay. So be prepared. 
But you're saying that I don't have to carry one. Jesus says that his disciples have to carry them, but you know, I don't have to carry one. And I still well, obey what Jesus. What I would say is, I want you to be responsive to how the Holy Spirit convicts your heart. And if you don't believe that God wants you to have swords, I'm not going to come over there and say, hey, you're serving Jesus wrong by not having a sword or not having why, a gun. Why didn't I don't think that's be- true, but I think that it's clearly, it can't be true that it is to be condemned the people who literally did the thing that Jesus told us to do are engaged in sin. Because as we've already established, Jesus would never commend to us sinful conduct as a course of action. Well, it just can't be the case that if Jesus has told us to do it, that it's wrong to do it. That that I by definition, and that it's really a, it's a logical positivism. But I'm basically saying the lawgiver, the authority who has defined right and wrong for all of creation, said this, and I have to believe yeah. that it's true. Well, it, and I, I believe it's true as well. It, and it's right there in the next verse. It talks about a prophecy that's being fulfilled. But yeah, but, but, but then also, how about the disciples? Why do we not read in any epistle after this that we need to carry arms? Shouldn't this have been passed on to us as well through the apostles, through the writings of Paul, uh, through the writings of John, through the writings of... Why, why don't we have this passed on? And, and in fact, why do we have the exact opposite passed on to, to it? So we don't have carnal weapons and we're not to use carnal weapons and we're not to return evil for evil and we're not to avenge ourselves and we're not to do any of these things. We're not to kill. Well, nowhere so, does it say we're not to have carnal weapons. It says that our wep- the weapons of the kingdom are not carnal weapons. It doesn't say, uh, I, and therefore you should have none of these other ones, right? But it's just saying, look, don't take up your swords thinking you're going to go fight a battle for Jesus, right? We're not going to go throw a Jesus revolution and subjugate all these people and then have Jesus kingdom, right? Like that's not the way the kingdom of God works, right? Jesus, Jesus was among did Jesus us. Carry, yeah. did, he, did he carry a sword? I don't think so. No, because he had the whole no. host of heaven. Why would he need a sword? He, right. already, he said that, right? He, he we, could literally summon all of the force available in the entire created world. It was at his disposal, but he didn't do it, of course, because he had this other purpose, which is the reason he was among us. Do you have another purpose as well? Has he called you to another purpose or has he called you to, to have a worldly purpose? No, I think that my purpose is to make myself a living sacrifice to him. And that means following his commandments. And it does mean loving my enemies. Uh, I, I'd really try not to have enemies. I'm afraid I've got a few anyway. But, uh, you know, I don't think that having a sword demonstrates hate for anybody. Neither does having a gun demonstrate hate for anybody. And I just, I guess you just have to take me at my word on what's in my heart, but I don't desire. No, yeah, I, I understand. But w- what I think is happening is that we have all of the New Testament, which just basically forbids this kind of approach. And then we have the first three centuries, which we haven't even gotten into, where we have basically a re- refutation of violence as a means of life and a way of life. We really don't see that change until the fourth century, but what well, we better pause or we better keep moving, uh, Doug. I don't want to. Sure. Continue. No, I appreciate. Yeah. I appreciate the uh, yeah. the restraint there. Uh, we could. Yeah. We, I mean, we could literally go all night on on a lot of this, of course, and and maybe we'll follow up in the future, of course. Um, so, it, in an effort of time, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this one. I think relatively short. I think I, what Dix is probably like a five second answer on this next question because he's a liber, li, libertarian anarchist and. You know, I know where he is on it, but Jerry, I don't know how much time you need to answer this next question, which is, and, and Dick, you are going to go first on this. Um, uh, the, the question, let me pull up the overlay here, uh, is should a Christian endorse government action against gun ownership? Why or why not? Well, I think that we're supposed to be salt and light, and that means we're supposed to have 
a pretty firm grasp on God's law. Now, that's not because we want to go and teach people all these ways where they have to follow these intricate rules, right? But it's by the law that we know our sin. But if a Christian were to endorse government action against gun owners, you're endo- first of all, all government action, as distinguished from market action, is in, you know, it's involuntary to some extent as to those that are the object of it, right? It's violent action rather than being voluntary cooperation, right? The, the definition of the state is that monopoly on introduction of violence, right? And so I don't think Christians can endorse any kind of government action other than the negative kinds like folding up their tent and find something else to do uh, or rolling back offensive, uh, you know, tyrannical laws that impose on people's uh, liberty. Uh, But I think, indeed, if you are a pacifist, you must condemn government action of this sort because it necessarily entails violations of pacifism. Uh, And so even if I were anti-gun, first off, as a Christian, and second off, as somebody who doesn't want a bunch of people to go start fights on my behalf or for anybody else, I wouldn't want 100 million people to have their houses raided by the government with armed agents to go sweep up guns. I don't want people to be you know, imprisoned. Uh, I'm pretty radically anti-imprisonment, by the way, and believe in that city's a refuge system, uh, which is more like a voluntary prison system, actually. But no, I, the state is the servant of the evil one. Now, God uses even the evil of the state for good, right? He can use all things according to his divine purpose for those that love him and are called according to it. And so, uh, you know, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was a righteous man, but God used what Nebuchadnezzar did ultimately for God's glory, even though Nebuchadnezzar was a, was a great sinner for most of the lifetime that we're reported, you know, about him from the, from the scripture, you know, and in that sense, Hitler, terrible evil doer, but God can still find ways to work out his purpose, even through those evil doers. Uh, and, and not, I'm not saying God sent Hitler to kill somebody or something like that. I'm just saying that God's the master of it all and all of it can get folded into his plan but I don't think he wants us going around and advocating for violence against, you know, other people who are sitting at their house with a particular configuration of steel and walnut in the safe. All right, Jerry, you're up on the question. Should a government, I'm uh, sorry, should a government, yes. you're up on the question. Should a Christian endorse government action against gun ownership? Why or why not? Well, I, I don't, I don't know that the Christian's role is to, is to advocate for this. Uh, let me let me put it this way. I believe that the New Testament, and I, I've talked to you about this before, Doug, I believe that the New Testament, as we've been talking tonight, is clear that the kingdom of God already has, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, gun laws. Now, I know guns didn't exist back in the, in the New Testament era. I know that these are a new invention. I knew these, these were not even dreamed up back in this time. We read that in the latter times, there'll be inventions of evil. And again, if guns are not an invention of evil, I don't know what is. Uh, But I do believe that the New Testament is clear that the kingdom of God already has, quote unquote, gun laws. And they look nothing like the Second Amendment that gives us a right to pack heat or to carry them wherever we want to go. In fact, we're told to put the gun away. We're told to put the sword away. We're told to not return evil for evil. We're told to leave room for the wrath of God. Now, the fact is, is that the Mosaic law that we read about that talks about retaliation, we know that the Mosaic law was to be kept by everybody. 
So in Israel, everybody had to keep the Mosaic law. In fact, if they didn't keep the Mosaic law, it was bad news. So the king, did the king have to keep the Mosaic law? Yes. Did the judges have to keep the Mosaic law? Yes. Did the, uh, you know, did the, did the uh, elders and the rulers and the priests have to keep the Mosaic law? The answer is yes. Okay. So if they all had to keep the Mosaic law, then why in the, in the kingdom of God would we not think the same thing about the law of Christ? The law of Christ transcends the law of Moses. The law of Christ, Jesus is the supreme interpreter of the Mosaic law. And he gives us, and he even tells us, a new law. So, so the comment here is, is that if everybody, including the king, the priests, the judges, and even the, the, the peasants, had to keep the Mosaic law, how do we come off thinking that the president and the judges and everyone else doesn't have to keep the law of Christ? I believe that they do, but we're not going to force that upon people. In fact, uh, you know, we, we might even ask, should a Christian endorse government action against homosexuality? Well, you'll find that a lot of Christians think that they should. How about transsexuals? Should, should Christians endorse government action against transsexuals? Well, many of them think that they should. What about illegal immigrants? Does the Christ, do, do, should a Christian endorse government action against illegal immigration? Oh, many people think that they should. Well, should a Christian endorse government action against abortion? And you'll find that many Christians believe that they should. And in fact, when it comes to abortion, at least half of the abortions that occur, occur by people, by women who claim to be Christians. So if the churches would teach their members to not have abortions and teach them that that was wrong, then we could probably get rid of half of the abortions overnight without the need for government intervention. And I think the same could be said for guns. If the church won't even teach on the sin of using guns against your enemies, then how is any government action going to make any lasting difference? That would be my answer. Dick, do you have any other, uh, any clarifying questions? Well, at, at risk of sounding pedantic, I'm not sure that laws that prohibit the mutilation of children or the giving to them of drugs that will prevent the normal musculoskeletal development of their bodies are laws against trans people. I think they're more protective of those who are being called trans people, actually. But with that said, I do not think that the state can be effective instrumentality for any of these, you know, it, solving any of these social problems. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, I think it, you know, and my adversary here is a worthy one, and I think that he's right on that the sin problem is is the problem of the world, and we're not in the business of ordering the the world as Christians. We shouldn't be in the business of ordering the world politically and all these other things after what we want. We just need to be salt and light and introduce them to King Jesus. All right, so I'll stop there. Jared, do you have any questions for anything Dick said? No, no, I I think that's I think okay. that's good. All right, excellent. Okay. This one, this one, I don't know how hard or easy this next one's going to be, uh, and I've never heard a debate person, a, a debate moderator, ask it. Uh, <laughs> but I would like to hear from, I would like to hear from each of you. And Jerry, you do get to go first. What is the strongest point uh, your opponent has made during tonight's debate? Yeah, no, I, I want to commend Dick, uh, as I've said before, because I have talked to other people along these lines uh, who who claim to be Christian. Uh, and who talk about, you know, guns being, you know, something that, that God wants them to have. But the humility with which he has presented 
his information tonight, I want to, I, I commend him. I, I commend him, you know, as a brother. Uh, but, but what I, I would say, the strongest point that he, he has made tonight is something that I do agree with. And it may seem strange to those listening that I agree with Dick on this point, but I, I want to make it clear that we are in total agreement on this. Dick has made it very, a very compelling case that we have the responsibility to protect and to defend. We absolutely do. Look, you know, I have, I have many children. I have, I have a lovely wife. I have a lot to protect. Um, I don't want anything to happen to my family. I don't want anything to happen to me. I would do virtually everything in my power to protect my family. But as a Christian, this is where, this is where Dick and I perhaps diverge is the fact that we, we absolutely agree on the fact that they must be protected. They must be defended where we, and so the strongest point that he's made is that, but, but I, I, but I, I have to just add this brief comment onto it just to show where we disagree. And that is that we, while we agree that the defense is absolutely required, that we would be evil fathers. If we didn't protect our children, we would be evil spouses. If we didn't care and protect for our, our wives. It's absolutely true. The introduction of guns as something that Christians can use along with evildoers is where we diverge. I will protect my wife. I will protect my children. But it will, it will, But I laid my sword down in 2016. I slept next to a loaded gun. I was scared. I slept next to a loaded gun for a long part of my life, for a very long part of my life. I laid down my loaded gun because I believed that I was living in fear and I knew I was living in fear. And God showed me that I had to lay it down. I had to lay down the gun. Now, God has a way of protecting his people. We read in Psalms 91, Psalm 91, where we see that God can protect us. He protected Jesus. He protected the disciples. He, we, we can achieve our purpose in this, in this world, especially if we stay close to the Lord. It doesn't mean that we'll live all the way to 80, 90, or 100. We may die. And it may bring glory to God. But the point is, is that in defending our families, if we use the same exact tactics as the evildoer, and in fact, preemptively use those uh, weapons against the evildoer before they do it to us, well, then we have done the same thing that the evildoer was planning to do to us. And so therefore, the way that I approach it is that I don't want to have in my mind a plan to kill anybody. I used to game it out. I had a loaded gun. I, I knew exactly what was going to happen. Somebody was going to break in. I knew it, I, I gamed it out. Everything was planned. I had premeditated murder. I had never seen the person's face, but he was going to leave my house in a body bag. And that was, that was the truth. Okay. That was what was going to happen to this guy. I, I have since now repented of that premeditated murder. And I have now seen that I can't put my trust in that because there was an idol. It was an idol. Now, now, Dick is making the point that he can carry that gun and it's not an idol to him. Well, that may be true. That may be true. But Dick, there are a lot of people listening to us today who, who don't have that ability. And by, and by saying that they can carry weapons without confronting them and telling them that it could be an idol for them, this is dangerous. 
So where we agree is that we must defend, we must protect. But where we disagree is that we must use the same tactics as the evildoer. All right. Uh, I'll just let you go ahead, Dick. Uh, strongest so, point your opponent has made tonight. Yeah. So first off, I, I do appreciate the, the tenor of the conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm not questioning whether my interlocutor is a fellow believer, and I hope he's not questioning whether I am. And I do think that the good book tells us that iron sharpens iron, and hopefully we're both a little sharper for our exchange tonight. Uh, one of the things that I really admire, and, and these aren't his words, but I think there's point, is you got to live Christian all the time. You don't just live Christian part of your life and then have this apartment in your heart for the worldly stuff so you can kind of keep a foot in both camps, right? And I admire uh, a dedication, a sort of radical idea from the roots up that, you know what? I've got to look at the means that I'm using, and I have to look at the ends that I'm after. And if both of those things are not acceptable in God's eyes, I got a sin problem. And that's a more important problem than a burglar problem or than a I'm scared for my wife problem. And so, I, again, not exactly as he worded it, but I think it's at the core of what he's driving at. And I think it's, it's worthy and, and correct. And I also agree about the weaker brother principle. Uh, he raises that issue where, uh, and I, I hope you know what the reference there is. I'm sure both of you do and that our audience likely is too, uh, that we should be looking out for ways that we can not put that stumbling block in front of the weaker brother. And, you know, I, again, I grew up in a home where it wasn't, I mean, we had some guns. I'll tell you that most of the guns my dad had, it was because he ran a home for alcoholics and a guy would show up to stay in the home for alcoholics and uh, couldn't have shooting iron while he's drying out from being an alcoholic in the shelter. And so my dad would give them some money so they weren't just giving it up. So most of our guns were like the worst, least orderly guns from like the 60s and 70s that you can imagine. But uh, the point is, I come at it from a different perspective where, you know, I, I do have godly parents who are believers. I don't think they treat guns like idols, but I absolutely do think our society can. And, and I, I think I said that earlier, and I certainly agree with Jerry when, when he says it, that there are a lot of people walking around out there with, with, a, with a God in their holster. Right. And with small G God in their holster. And, and I will tell you that uh, when I was younger, I had to confront uh, that problem in my life. Not that I was going out and being violent, but when I first as an adult uh, became a gun owner and, you know, I'm a, I'm a geardo, if you're familiar with the word, right? I like gadgets and gizmos. So that plays into this partly. But at some point I had to question, you know, am I adoring things? that really my adoration ought to be pointed somewhere else. And so I'm not saying that, you know, that I'm totally invulnerable. I just think I've already repented of that. And again, I don't think that there's such, you know, as Jerry was kind of driving at earlier, I don't think there is a duty to where you can only be a Christian if you have a sword or you can only be a faithful, obedient Christian if you, if you have uh, a weapon. I do think that people should go where uh, the Spirit leads them within the four corners of what the Scripture tells us in black letters. Uh, but in any case, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but I do appreciate Jerry's uh, good heart and his desire to seek the truth and get to the right answers and most of all to honor our God. All right. Excellent. Okay. So we are going to go, we, we're going to go straight to questions for each other uh, because that's what time allows. And I'm moderator. I get to do what I want. Um, <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Supreme executive power. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So, um, all right. 
I didn't, I didn't, uh, let's see. So I guess, Jerry, you get to ask Dick a question. Let's try to keep him pithy. Uh, and then what I'm going to do, so you each get two questions. I'm going to limit it to oh. that. And, and I'm sure there'll be exchange and we can, we can ask more and, and I'll be, I'll be generous here, but I, we, we do have short on time. Uh, and then I, I have some questions for you. So Jerry, uh, ask a question of Dick here. Okay. Um, Dick, let's see. Um, there's a couple of facts. So let me lay out a couple of facts and then I'll just ask you a question. Uh, fact number one, uh, Jesus never used violence against a man during his earthly ministry, even when the Mosaic law sanctioned violence. For example, with the woman caught in the act of adultery or the man who was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. That's a fact. Another fact, uh, Jesus never commanded his followers to use violence against anyone during his earthly ministry. That's a fact. Uh, there's no official church teaching that Christ's disciples ever used violence against anyone during their earthly lives after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's a fact. And the final fact is that Jesus' nonviolent love of friends and enemies is a model for us today, that his nonviolent love of friends and enemies is what we're supposed to do, that we're supposed to model that. So the, the question becomes, it's, it's twofold. A, do you believe that Jesus kept God's law? Yes. Okay, B, if Jesus kept God's law perfectly through nonviolence, how can we keep God's law through violence? So on the second question, I'm going to have to dispute your premise. I think in the Gospel of John, it's expressly made clear that Christ did use physical force when purging the temple. And it's, and we know that because when it talks about him putting together these cords into a whip, it refers to him using the whip not only to drive out the animals, but the people with them. And so I, I would not admit the premise that your second question is, is based on that Jesus was entirely nonviolent. Now, so I don't so think he lived a violent lifestyle but I, I would not say that he was entirely nonviolent. I would say we should be as nonviolent as Jesus was. Okay. So you know that atheists know that Jesus is nonviolent. You know that Jews don't like the fact that Jesus was nonviolent. That's why they won't follow him, many of them. Muslims know that Jesus is nonviolent. And, and in fact, Isaiah would be incorrect if Jesus used violence because Isaiah 53 verse 9 says that there was no violence in him that he did no violence. So, so we know that Jesus never did violence to a man. Uh, that's, that's a fact. Otherwise, the whole Bible falls apart because Isaiah, okay. Isaiah prophesies that Jesus did no violence. He did no violence. And so, so I don't know if you can challenge that without, without destroying the entire integrity of the Bible. Because I, and in fact, I don't even know of an atheist who would agree with you that Jesus used violence. I can't even think of a single atheist I know who would agree with you that Jesus used violence. I don't know if there's anybody, is, I wonder if anybody's in the audience who, who agrees with you on that. Well, Jesus, the, Jesus was nonviolent. The Wikipedia article on the purging of the temple was of that opinion, and I happen to agree with them because the Gospel of John expressly tells well, us that Well, how about Isaiah? How about Isaiah instead of Wikipedia, huh? I mean, well, how, how, how about again, Isaiah? I'm not referring to Wikipedia as the authority. I'm referring to the Gospel of John which is part of the inspired word of God that we can take as inerrant and the authority for instruction and for correction. 
And I'm telling you that it says that Jesus used an implement, a weapon, not a deadly weapon, but certainly a weapon, a whip when used against a person is an instrumentality that we would describe as a weapon. And he used that against human beings. And it says it in the gospel of John. And so I, I don't know how you can disregard that. I think that given express explicit information like that, you must read Isaiah or any other passage in light of that express teaching in the, in the gospel of John about Christ's actions during his earthly ministry. Well, this is an enormous difference that we have. And it's, and in fact, it's, it's an enormous difference you would have with the majority of Christianity. So, so we should all know that you stand very, very on, on very thin ice by, by taking that single scripture and then applying that entirely to Jesus and basically accusing him of violence. So, so you're saying that the disciples never did violence, but Jesus did. Is that right? I didn't say the disciples never did violence. You said that earlier. I said we don't have evidence to be so able to you, assess you, and answer so that question. Think, but what I've said is on this occasion, Jesus used physical force, which we can refer to generally as violence. violence. We use violence. violence differently. But yeah, he used physical force in a way that clearly because he's God doing it, it can't be unjust, right? We know everything that Christ did was just. He's perfect and sinless. And so if he did something, it must mean that thing was not sinful. So, well, so yeah, I actually so want to jump used, in for a second, Jerry, if you don't ahead, mind. Ahead, so, Dick, yeah. uh, if, if I'm hearing uh, Jerry's uh, comment here is that we can, we can know that Jesus committed no violence based on Isaiah what, 53, right? Um, 53, Isaiah 53.9. Would, would it be okay to say that whatever happened in the temple would not have fallen under the definition of violence in the same way that we think of like lethal violence, intent to kill violence, all of that. Because like, if you say he did nothing wrong, so whatever he did in the temple wasn't wrong. Why can't we just use the, throw in the word violence instead of wrong and say, all right, well, this was okay. This was force. It was aggressive, but it wasn't violence on the nature of the, or, of the order of what guns are capable of doing. Like that, that, it didn't seem way, like that's a good way of putting it, Doug. So let, let me just rephrase the question that way. If, if Jesus kept the law of God perfectly without, through nonviolence, except for this little thing that you're talking about in John, which, again, the, the, the whole entire Orthodox Church would disagree with you, how, how, can, how can I expect to keep God's law through violence? How can you keep God's law through violence? How will you please God through violence if Jesus didn't please God through violence? Well, and, and again, I would say that the example of a person who only ever used lawful force against another one time in their life is absolutely typical of the human experience. I don't think that getting into fights all the time is what we're talking about. I'm talking about an exceptional case that for the vast majority of people who are prepared for it, they'll never experience it, right? And, and that is a wonderful thing. I don't want them to experience it. I don't want people to be subject to aggression unto death or, or serious injury or rape or kidnapping such that deadly force would be justified. And praise the Lord, it is really rare that people have to kill in that, in that scenario. And again, there, according to the National Academy of Sciences, there are perhaps as many as 600 defensive gun uses a day on the low end of the credible range of estimates in the social sciences data. And that is about twice as common as criminal gun uses. But those people, the vast majority of defensive gun uses do not involve shooting anybody. And if you had hate in your heart for your enemy, I mean, if I had wanted to kill that guy breaking into my house, I'm pretty confident I would not have been convicted of a crime. But I didn't want that outcome. It would have been terrible. And I, and I would never want that. And, and it would be 
a sad and a sad thing, even if it's a hundred percent justified, because you were there to see someone so deep in sin that that was their final result. And if they weren't a believer, that's it. They got no more chances, right? I mean, that's a terrible thing. I don't want that. Hmm. But I do believe that I have an obligation to protect the innocent and to protect the weak. And that other person making the choice to victimize, I don't think is something that would be on my conscience. Dick, what questions do you have for Jerry? So if, and again, just assuming arguendo, your conclusion, what is the practical result in the local church? So, and I'm thinking in terms of church discipline, is that something where you would come in to people, hey, you know, if you've got a, a brother uh, in Christ and they have kind of crossed this line, is it kind of go to them one-on-one and, and maybe offer some counseling and admonition, whisper some wisdom in the brother's ear, as it were, and then, you know, maybe bring one or two others and then go to the church, you know, elders and then the congregation? I mean, is this a, a disciplinary thing? Because certainly some things would be, right? I mean, if somebody were engaged in persistent adulterous relationships within the church congregation, I mean, the New Testament clearly commands us that we have to exclude that person from fellowship, be, and, and partly because they're defaming the name of Christ by being associated with it. And so if there's a similar degree of sinfulness associated with this conduct, my question is, what does church discipline look like in this area? And is it the same as ours? Hmm. Yeah, the, the Bible, whenever it lists out the qualifications for an elder, it includes violence as something that's not allowed. It includes it. It includes the idea of a striker. Uh, they, there's another word that's used as well that in, infers violence in Timothy. So the idea is is that this is not this is not something that would be allowed at a pastoral level or even at a deacon level. So if if a, if a person, but see, here's the thing: we don't teach about that today. You know, as as you well know, Dick. I mean, I don't know if if anyone has been disciplined. You know. In the in this millennium, uh, for gluttony, uh, I don't know if anyone has been disciplined for, uh, you know, the idea of greed. I mean, we really don't see much in the way of church discipline when it comes to this. And quite frankly, the church seems very very quiet on guns. And I think it's quiet on guns because they're fearful of losing tithe money. I think oh. that if if the church actually spoke out on this topic, they would really run the risk of being in, in trouble. Uh, it, it, Jesus makes it very clear that this is not something that we're supposed to live. Uh, we're not supposed to have a way of life based upon weapons and guns. And I, I don't think that a church should allow a person who is who is ready to use a gun against an evildoer. Uh, I, I don't think that they should, uh, you know, turn a blind eye to this. I, I think this is something that should be dealt with. I do think that it should be, uh, there should be discipline in it. And in fact, for the first three centuries, uh, Dick, it was. Uh, you couldn't be a soldier in much of the early church. You simply, yes. dis- you simply could not be a, a soldier and, and, become, and become a baptized Christian. You had to renounce the sword and give it up because you followed a nonviolent master and you can't follow Jesus through violence was the thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, so in the early church, they certainly disciplined on this topic. I think it would be wonderful if the church would return to its nonviolent roots and, and teach that, no, this is not allowed. And we might say, well, that might leave us as uh, sheep to the slaughter that might, 
make us vulnerable to people who want to kill us? And then we would say, yes, that's exactly how the church was founded. And that's exactly how the church grew uh, in the early, in the uh, first three centuries. So I think, I think our adoption of the sword has, has dulled us and desensitized us to the wickedness of violence. And I think that our, our possession of guns uh, can be very deceiving because we may say, well, we're not going to use them. We just have them, but we're not really going to use them. Well, this, to me, this is very dangerous because it, it almost causes us to live in a constant temptation. Like I said earlier, it's kind of crass, but if I, but if I go to a party and I take a condom with me and I'm like, well, I'm not planning on having sex. Well, I've kind of, I've kind of lent myself to this. I'm kind of tempting myself. I've kind of set myself up. And I think that's what we do when we are Christians and we have guns. We are setting ourselves up for a potential sin that we don't need to do. Uh, we can rely upon God. Uh, and I really like what you said earlier, Dick, when you said that many people have a, a God in their holster. And I, I think that that needs to be confronted from the church, mm-hmm. from, from, the, from the elders. And I think that churches should confront that attitude. And I don't see a lot of it. People are afraid to do that. Jerry, would you say that at the very least, the church discipline should uh, happen on, well, I guess both of you can answer this, on the order of idolatry, that this is, yeah. okay, so maybe maybe not gun ownership, but like, well, okay, at least if it's clear from the elders of the church are like, dude, you're, this is this is your God right now. This is, this well, is, this is too much of an obsession for you. It's, it's not only, it's not only idolatry. It's just a complete, it's a complete, um, it's, it's a mockery of, of Jesus. I mean, it, Jesus was nonviolent to the point where he crawled upon his own cross. Uh, violence was the sin that was committed against Jesus. It was the very sin that nailed him to the cross. God didn't kill Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that God killed Jesus. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that man killed Jesus and God raised him from the dead. Acts chapter 3 says man killed Jesus and God raised him from the dead. Acts chapter 4 says man killed, murdered Jesus and God raised him from the dead. Acts chapter 5 says man killed Jesus and God raised him from the dead. Acts chapter 7 says man killed and murdered Jesus and God raised him from the dead. Violence is the very sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. So for us to to play with it and and imagine we can we can uh, you know dance around the fire and hold it to our chest. This is a mockery of Jesus to dance around violence and, and assume that we won't get caught caught up in it. It's a destructive sin. It's it's antichrist. It's not what Christ looks like. And so yes, we must call it out from the pulpits. But as I've said, there's a great fear to do that. There's a great fear. All right. Well, I, I have to say, I am terrible at predictive math. Uh, and by that, I mean, I, I should have had fewer questions or something because I'm not not uh, very good at predicting, oh, this is going to take us two hours and we're already a little bit over time. I don't know uh, what that means for the, for the two of you. Uh, I'm at, at one time zone ahead, so it's a little later for me. Uh, can we have just a few more minutes of your time? Are we good? Yeah, yeah that's, that's okay, good. good. I, I want to be respectful. I also promised the beginning would have... Uh, listener, um, uh, viewer questions, which I have here, uh, they're starred. All right. So we got Mark here. He says a gun is a force multiplier. A woman is unable to protect herself from almost any man. That's not entirely true, but it is often true. Uh, that's my insertion there for those just listening. So a Christian woman packs a gun and never uses it for 30 years until one day 
looks like that got cut off. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. So, I mean, the, the, the spirit of this is, you know, I think, uh, Dick, you said something along the lines of the, um, someone made it equal. Uh, Samuel Colt. Samuel Colt, that's right. I, I knew the last name. I couldn't figure out the guy's first name. Um, Samuel Colt made it equal. And, and, and I think, Jerry, I think the heart of that question and the point of what Dick was saying is like, what do you do with uh, a, how do you counsel a highly vulnerable person who is simply, they're not, they're not owning a gun for the purposes at which you are clearly rejecting and that even Dick rejects. Right? I'm, a, I'm just going to arm myself to the teeth and nobody better come near me. But a poor defenseless woman, um, how, what, what measure should that woman take if, if this is her only option to sort of keep the man at bay who's about to, you know, rape her to use the kind of a, a little bit of a trope of how that all happens, but um, just to use a, an obvious example, um, what should a woman do? Because the gun is something that gives her equal status or equal force to a man who's about to do her significant harm. Well, she should do what Jesus would do and blow his head off, right? Is that the right answer? <laughs> no, of course not, right? I mean, we, we know that's absurd. So, so, so what should the woman do? Well, we would, she should do what everyone else should do. She should turn to, to, the, to the nonviolent master and ask him. Uh, the, the truth is, is that we actually have an advocate with the father. So we all are very defenseless. We are all like sheep to the slaughter. We are all followers of Christ, and we, we are all vulnerable because of that. He didn't promise that we were not going to be killed. He never promised this. This is not a promise that, that, we are, that we are given by Jesus. He doesn't give that promise to us. In fact, he tells us the exact opposite. They're going to hate you because you look like me. They're going to hate you because you talk like me. They're going to, to despise you. The world is going to hate you. So we have, to, we have to be able to teach people that, look, yes, you may be vulnerable like everyone else is, but that doesn't mean that you, we are going to counsel you to become an evildoer so that, you, that, so that nothing bad will happen to you. Should she, I, I, uh, would it be wrong for her to engage in enrolling in some martial arts classes so that she can improve her strength and then stop a person? Or is that against the spirit of what you just decided that the, that the spirit is going to advocate for us? You know, because uh, th that's not these, lethal. That's clear. I mean, in some martial arts, yeah. it's, it's, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, these these types of hypothetical questions are very difficult, and 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 I think when we we look back at the early church, there were many people who were very vulnerable as well. Uh, we have to imagine, you know, did the early church uh, arm up their people to protect them from the dangers that lurked? And we don't see that in the early church. We see the exact opposite. So I, I think what we have here is we have a cultural problem, and we have a resistance to what Jesus has to say. I think we we hear, I brought up homosexuality earlier. This, this debate is not about homosexuality, but many people are convinced that Jesus is against homosexuality, even though he never says anything about it. Now, I believe that he is, but my point is, is that he never says anything about it, but they're convinced and you can't change their minds. They are absolutely convinced that homosexuality is completely wrong with no ends at transsexuals, like all of these buzzwords, they are completely convinced, but Jesus doesn't say anything about it. So, but the point is that he does say something about violence. He does say something about killing. He does say something about following him and picking up our cross. And we, and it's almost as if our culture has kind of been designed 
to block those those commands out. We don't want to hear those. We're happy to hear some of the others, but the things that he expressly says, we don't want to hear. So we look for any way out of it. This is what homosexuals do. They look for a way out of what Jesus has commanded. And with them, it's easy because he never said anything about it. So, so my point is, is that uh, these hypothetical questions about what a woman should do, uh, I think are, are unhelpful. I think that uh, it's on a case-by-case basis. I think that the church will be better served by teaching its members to put their guns down, not pick them up. Dick, do you have any thoughts on the martial arts thought part of that? I mean, I know what you think a woman well, is able to do and ought to do is... Well, I've defended a woman who shot her rapist uh, in court, and uh, it was a terrible thing for her to go through. And then the state was dead set on re-victimizing her uh, by piling on after she'd already been attacked. Uh, now, she saved his life, by the way, after she shot it. But in any case, I I don't want anybody to watch my side of this and come away thinking, you know, Dick Clark just thinks that to really be at peace in your heart, you got to have a gun to, re- to rely on. I believe in using guns as instrumentalities, but my hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess I apprehend the experience of pain. I don't want to experience pain. But if somebody takes my life, I gain something greater than they could ever take away from me, right? And so Amen. I, Amen, Dick. So that part, no dispute whatsoever. Uh, and again, I just differ on whether or not it is mercy and generosity in the spirit of what Christ commanded and according to his plain language to then say, therefore, that we should rebuke people who use violent force to defend themselves or others. Uh, I think that there, it's possible to be at a middle ground where you say, I have forsworn this, and, I, and I'm convicted that that's where I need to be. And maybe you're convicted other people need to be there too, but I, I'm sure as a, a Bible believer, you've got to admit that ultimately that judgment lies with God, and we're going to exhort people using his word and uh, what the Spirit lays on our heart. Uh, but yeah, I guess I, I don't want anybody to think, you know, every potential rape victim's hope is Samuel Colt or Smith & Wesson or something like that, right? That's not their hope. And then anybody that's got a troubled heart, the best medicine is the one that's available at any church that preaches the gospel, okay, uh, in, in my opinion. But I'm not prepared to, and, and in fact, I reject the condemnation of someone who engages in defensive force. Uh, now, the martial arts question, obviously, there are different things uh, that could entail in martial art. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is mostly about submissions and holds, right? It's not about inflicting destruction on your adversary. It's about controlling them, not letting them hurt you, right? So uh, I, I would be interested in, in Jerry's take on whether that's perhaps more permissible where it's more about redirecting that harmful force rather than inflicting harm on the at, on the aggressor. Uh, Jerry, do you I'll have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and pepper spray would be an interesting one to bring up too. Anyway, I'll leave it to him there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think so, some of these things, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not the fine. I, mean, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm the final, you know, decider here. I mean, uh, I, I don't make the rules here. I, in fact, I don't like the rules, to be completely honest with you. I would, I would rather shoot my enemies in the face. Okay, let me, be, let me be very clear. I would rather shoot my enemies in the face. In fact, I love my wife so much that I would like to gouge out the eyes of anybody who wanted to ever even dare touch her. That would be my human reaction. I would yes. prefer to Here kill them. And, you know, okay, <laughs> this is what I would prefer to do. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I don't yep. have I don't have the option 
of choosing how I'm going to do this. I, I, what I have to do is to follow Jesus. And, and am I perfect in that? No, I failed so many times. But if we don't know the standard, then we're always going to fail. So the point is, is that we have to set the standard and then there is forgiveness. Thank goodness there is forgiveness. So yes, if, if I did something that violated Jesus's words and I was violent to protect my wife, or I was violent to protect someone, and I actually killed someone in the process, I believe that there's forgiveness for that. And I believe that, that God you know, can, can heal that situation. I don't think that any of us are far gone here. But all, I think what we have to set is the standard. The standard has to be clear. And if we water down the standard on this and this alone, if we make the standard very clear on divorce, and we make the standard very clear on homosexuality, and we make the standard very high, very high and clear on transsexualism, and we make it very high on illegal immigration. But then when it comes to violence, we water it down because of our own evil desires. Mm -hmm. I think this is the wrong way to approach it. So the standard has to be set. Now, I can get forgiveness for that, but I have to know what the standard is. And I'm telling you what I believe the standard to be is what Jesus said and what the disciples said. Jesus killed no one. Jesus maimed no one. The disciples killed no one, and they maimed no one, barring the, the night on Gethsemane when, when Peter was rebuked by his nonviolent master. So, so to conclude that, it's simply to say that we have no example of violence as a way of dealing with conflict resolution, no matter what it is. And so, therefore, we have to have that as our set, whether we like it or not. That has to be our standard. And then we, we go from there. Uh, the sad thing is, is that we don't teach that as a standard. We teach what the man's law says. Man's law says we can carry guns. Okay, well, we say that's fine. Now, man's law says we can kill a stand, stand your ground law. So we say, well, that's what we can do. Well, no, that can't be our standard as a Christian. So, so, so you know, the state may say you can have an abortion. Well, it doesn't mean that it pleases God. The state may say you can carry a gun and shoot an intruder. It doesn't mean that it pleases God. So we have to be willing to say we may be sinning by doing this and we can ask for forgiveness for it but if we don't know that it's a sin, then, then we don't know what the standards are. And I think this is the peril of what we're dealing with. Okay. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, I, I love how this is interactive and live. We've got Kara here telling us, uh, correcting us live here. Thank you, Kara. Uh, she thinks that Krav Maga is about disabling somebody, not uh, jujitsu, but... Uh, this is great. I love the interaction. Uh, I know, I've trained Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's about guards and holds and mounts. Okay. I, I've spent some time. All right. That. I'm not going to put myself in the octagon or anything, but. <laughs> All right. Well, no, I love the, I love the interaction here. This is really great. Um, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up with only with, with one uh, question um, because, you know, we clearly don't have a lot of, lot more time. We've used up a lot of our time and, and I'm sure that people can reach out to Jerry uh, and reach out to Dick for for further questions. Um, you know, be polite for those of you who might listen to this and be like, oh, I did not like what this guy said. Don't 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 harass them." Uh, <laughs> Kara's apologizing, Dick. <laughs> of like, that's okay. The, yeah, that's great. Um, so my and, and this, I got to this in a little bit of a practical level, and I, and I know that some of these theoretical questions, um, you know, and, th and this is great. We've got we've had a two hour and almost twenty minute discussion. And you know, I'm not even going to say it out loud, but y'all know what I mean. You know who hasn't come up in this debate? <laughs> the 
the person who always supposed to come up in a debate over things like violence and whether or not we should be pacifists and so forth. And so if you, you'll, you'll figure that out. But uh, we haven't talked about that. But the very practical question that a lot of people uh, that a lot of people want to ask is like, well, what limits, what should I do when there is a situation, if I don't have a gun, if I'm supposed to protect, because you both have very, you've nodded your head in agreement this entire time, because this is why I like this question. Um, and this is uh, good points on both sides. I would ask Jerry, not no gotcha intended, what level of defense of a spouse or child acceptable in light of scripture? No guns, not weapons, only fists. I'm honestly curious about your thoughts. Is it okay to tackle the intruder? Is it okay to use martial arts? Again, uh, keeping this with the intent that even Dick ca- carries, even with a weapon, uh, with, with, with a gun, um, is, is it okay to restrain somebody to do that? Or is it like literally no force? Is it like w- what happens What happens in the scene when there's, when there's something very, very practical happening? Because it does happen, and it's not always about our enemies. I mean, yes, somebody wanting to aggress you is your enemy, but sometimes it, you're, you're a little just more of a, I wouldn't say innocent bystander, but you are being acted upon almost incidentally that rather than sort of premeditated, I'm going to go break into Jerry's house tonight kind of, kind of stuff. So I think by and large, that question is for you, Jerry. I know Dick's answer on this, but you know, Dick, I want to know what you'd do if you didn't have a gun. So Jerry, I'll let you answer first and then Dick, you can answer with what would you do and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Okay. So yeah, I've, I've already kind of addressed this um, before my, my answer, you know, my answer is again, I'm not the decider. I'm not the lawgiver. Uh, I'm not the one who makes the rules. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really a nobody. I mean, all, all I'm, all I'm saying is what Jesus has said about this topic. So to me, the, the very best answer I could give is, as I gave earlier, is the rightful response to a situation like that would be to react towards that person the same way you would towards the person that you love the most. And if you would not take a gun and shoot the person you love the most in the face at the very first sign of potential danger, then that should tell you something. Uh, It should tell you something about your own heart. Mm. It should tell you something about where your mind is. So uh, whenever I think about this, I think about my own spouse. If my own spouse was getting ready to do harm, you know, she would never do this, but if she was getting ready to do the harm, what would I do? Would I reach for the gun and shoot her? Of course not. What's the, why? why? Why wouldn't I use the gun to stop her versus somebody else? Well, because I love her. I know her. I, I, would, I would try to do everything but kill her because I have love for her. Okay, well, this is the same thing. This is the same kind of love that I'm saying that we have to display even towards our enemies. Now, I'm not saying this. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that we have to do this. Now, if we don't do it, well, that's between us and Jesus. But uh, because I wouldn't shoot my wife in the face or my mother in the face or my father in the face, if I thought that they were going to do something bad, I would look for anything else first. That's what I'm saying that the proper Christian response would be in any situation. and. And if we don't do it that way, I believe the Bible calls us out as evil judges, that we, that we, ju- we, we, we wrongly discern, like we prefer the rich man, as James says, and then we make the poor man sit down here. We make ourselves evil judges. And so if we would show love and compassion and mercy to our own, 
but then kill yours without hesitation. There's something wrong in our hearts. That's what I think Jesus is telling us. So what, however you would act if the person was the one you would love the most, was doing the crime, was doing the, 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 you know, the, uh, the action. I think that's how we have to respond. And, I, and I, that's not my opinion. I believe that's what Jesus is saying. Okay. Well, thank you, Jerry. Okay. Uh, yeah. Dick, I, I'm, my version of this question for you is, without a gun, what would you do? Well, can I cheat and, and respond just a, a, a little <laughs> bit to, to his answer? I'm sorry. I, I'll have a short and pithy that's fine. and that's funny fine. answer, but let me, let me get this. So this phrase, very first sign of potential danger that Jerry has, has used some iteration of a few times, I think it's smuggling in a straw man because nobody, at least I'm not saying, that the first thing you should do if you feel that it may be dangerous to shoot somebody. I think that you should only use deadly force if it is necessary to prevent the imminent death, serious injury, rape, or kidnapping of, an, of yourself or another person. So it's it's a last resort, not a first resort. I certainly... Would you I'm shoot not, your... Dick, Dick, would you shoot your spouse as a last resort? Would you? Absolutely. And, and you my would. wife would shoot me too. If my, like, for example, and I was so you just going to get guys, to you guys, would, you guys would shoot each other with guns. Is I got right? the next, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So All the right. next bullet point I've got, I do love my wife and my wife loves me. And I'm, I, my mother refers to her as my second greatest blessing after salvation. And I couldn't deny that that's true. But you're prepared uh, to kill her. But you're prepared to kill her though, with a gun. My, here's the thing though. What I want for myself is if, if my wife ever had to protect our children from me, I want her to do it. And I believe that she would want the same. You, you want her and to so shoot you fact, in the head. I believe that you doing that to other that you have them doing to you in this circumstance does entail protecting the, the weaker ones from an aggressor, even a beloved aggressor. And so, yes, I because I would do unto others as I would have them do unto me, I would defend my own children, even from my beloved wife, just like I hope she would do to defend them from me. And I do believe that that would be the right thing. And in whatever fugue I would have to be in to be engaged in that aggression, ultimately, I'm telling you right now, you know, ex ante, I think that would be justified if those were the facts that she has to kill me as the only way to stop my imminent killing or, or maiming of our children or something. And I don't I mean, think to, to be fair to Dick it's Jerry, I think I don't think he'd shoot her in the face. I think he would shoot her in the leg or shoot her in a way that would prevent whatever it was that he's trying well, to stop from and happening. And again, it's just down the line where that's, wow. the, that's all I got yeah. left. Okay. It's not my first choice. Okay. And I'm sure there are people out there, Jerry, who are very much going to be like, well, yeah, I'll shoot my wife in the face or I'll do, you know, I did well, just regard. I don't like her, That okay? is not Dick's position. I, I don't believe. But okay. So to answer your actual question for me, Doug, uh, yes, about alternate methods of defense, if no gun. So what I would do, don't have a gun and a pepper spray, you know, I would just start to discuss libertarian philosophy until the attacker fled in horror. <laughs> oh, sorry. I hope, I hope people get that more than uh, <laughs> more than others. All right. So, that's all would you would you use? Your, you said you had some martial arts background. Would you use that I, to protect? I mean, I in all seriousness, protecting yeah. your family sometimes does mean hiding them and getting to another room and or going up to the you know to the the shed in the back, whatever. Well, and I'll tell you, I, I work with a national organization called the Faith-Based Security Network, which is about training and equipping people for the Ministry of Security, okay? And so uh, I will tell you that the very first thing that you hope to do is deny access to victims, not go on some kind of a manhunt, right? You, you want to lock down mm. or, or get people out, whatever, I mean, whatever the scenario calls for. But all of these 
methods of buying time and denying access to victims are all, they're all things you plan for and hope prevail more than getting to that last resort of a gun. Uh, and, you know, not certainly not all churches have any kind of armed security, but all of them should have child protection policies where that they're protecting kids and not giving ready access to people who might want to do, you know, some kind of abuse, some kind of wrong to those kids, too deep leadership, things like that can mm -hmm. help with that. And then even just the ability to execute an effective lockdown protocol, uh, you know, that awful atrocity that occurred at that Christian school in Nashville, 13 minutes, six victims. That's actually a sign that that facility did something very right. And if you watch the body cam videos of the police, you'll see that every door they encountered was a locked door. Somebody got trained up on lockdown protocols. They executed one and that, and without any forcible response on site as of yet, that frustrated the attacker enough to where she shifted fire and just started shooting out the window at the cops. So great. Absolutely. I mean, I want all kinds of layers before we're to, you know, wide up at the OK Corral defending virtue, right? I mean, that's absolutely the last resort. And if somebody shoots a gun in church, I mean, your opportunity to share the gospel in that place is, is going to be significantly impaired for a long time, even if you do everything right, according to my conception of what right looks like. So it's not an it's not something you desire happen at all. And I will tell you, with my experience of organizing church security teams, you absolutely do not want a person on there who thinks it's cool to be on the security team, right? Like that's that's their cool guy hangout something. You know, that can't be what it's about. It has to be hmm. about the thing I was talking about earlier, right? Helping sick people be able to come to to the hospital and and making sure that they don't get hurt while they're there if you can do yeah. something about it. Anyway, excellent. Gentlemen, this has been uh, a, a new experience for me. I, I believe it's been a kind of a new experience for you because I don't think anybody debates this direct in this sort of format. And I, it sort of felt like somewhat of an interview, but also structured enough to where we gave each other time to talk. And uh, I appreciate the spirit at which you both have approached this. Uh, the liveliness is clearly uh, not part of the uh, animosity that exists, but you know, at this at this table. Um, and I very much uh, hope to hear from from you, you know, afterward, you know, what did you think? How did it go? Uh, and of course, from our listeners and our viewers, I would love to hear from you. How did you think this debate went? What could we do better? Aside from maybe me being better timekeeper, but like, come on, we all had fun here, right? Like, you know, there's just a lot to go with. So um, again, uh, I want to thank Dick Clark. Um, and I also want to thank uh, Jerry Robinson. I'm going to get his face up here so people could see his uh, website, truerichesradio.com. Uh, uh, Dick, uh, Dick is, uh, findable on Libertarian Christian Institute's website, libertarianchristians.com. Uh, and gentlemen, thank you both for, for being here and for being part of this, for this, being part of this debate. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Dick, for the, uh, for the kind debate. It was a good time. Jerry, I appreciated it too. And, uh, you know, like I say, I hope we both come away and learn something. I know I did. And Doug, I appreciate your patience with both of us. Oh, Yeah. No, it was a lot of fun. I, uh, I mean, what two and a half hours in? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm well. I'm ready to keep going, but I, I just know I <laughs> can't. So, yeah. Anyway, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 